0: Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 65. Welcome to the summer of 2020. Welcome to Pride Month. Welcome to the most important second half of a year in modern American history. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying
1: attention. Good morning. My name is Judy Cruz. I'm the director from El Regional Medical Center's ER. Today has been one of the worst days by far. All of our beds are full. There are 12 patients waiting for admission to ICU, which we have no beds, so that means we're pending transfer. We have to look for beds in another hospital. This is very taxing, time-consuming. Some of these patients have been here two to three days waiting for beds. Um, half of them are on intubated on ventilators. One of them required CPR for the first three hours of our shift. That means four nurses, a respiratory therapist, a physician in that room the entire three hours. And unfortunately, he lost his battle to the coronavirus. When I walk out of this office, I'm gonna go out there and tell the staff what an amazing job they're doing and have been doing and how proud I am of them. But just know that we're all praying That this comes to an end soon. And we just want to go back to normal.
0: We all do. We all just want to go back to normal. But there is no more normal. We can't be blurred by our pride. The days of the normal we knew are gone. There's only a new normal now. We can't go back to normal like it was before the coronavirus any more than we can go back to the days like it was before George Floyd was killed or the days before Trump got elected, or the days before 9-11 happened. We all wish we could, but we can't. And wishing it won't make it happen. That's what Trump tried to do. That's what the governors in too many states tried to do. That's what too many people in this country think they can do now by not wearing a mask. And it's why we are where we are right now. If you
2: look at how we've been hit, we've been hit badly. I mean, anybody who looks at the numbers, we've had now over 120,000 deaths and we've had two and a half million infections. So it's a serious situation.
0: Yes, Dr. Fauci, it is a serious situation. And the greatest unforced error in modern American history, worse than the Iraq War, worse than the Vietnam War. All of those unforced errors were less predictable than our war against the pandemic. The pandemic was like the biggest, slowest punch ever thrown at the United States. It was telegraphed. We were warned. And it didn't have to go this way. We could have ducked. We could have blocked. We could have moved. But we didn't. We took that haymaker punch right on the chin. The greatest unforced error in American history we've ever seen. One that we may never fully recover from. In part because it not only shattered our healthcare system, our economy, and hundreds of thousands of families, it shattered the world's trust in our government. And it shattered our trust in our government, in our leaders, in our systems, and in each other. It shattered the very foundation of America. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. That's America's motto, out of many, one. But if that many can't work together as one, our heterogeneous nation fails to be a nation. It's reduced to regions. It's reduced to a diverse collection of very different states. States working independently, working against each other. Instead of uniting to attack and defend, they're dividing to compete. A scattering of lone, disjointed warriors facing a powerful, focused, common enemy. And if the group of 50 states can't stay together, like a herd of elephants facing a pack of wolves or a pride of lions, the virus will take us down one by one, focusing on the weakest first, pulling them from the rest of us, one by one, shattering the herd, busting it wide open to attack from other predators and from scavengers. This week, America hit a one-day record number of coronavirus cases. It was entirely predictable, and it was entirely preventable. But President Mayhem failed to lead, most of all because he failed to unite. He failed to bring us together as a herd, as a pack, as a pride. He failed to lead us from many to one. Too many in Congress, especially in the Republican Party, failed to lead. Too many governors failed to lead. Too many mayors failed to lead. Too many mothers and fathers and sons and daughters failed to lead. And 800 Americans died yesterday because of it. And 800 Americans will die again today because of it. In three and a half days, more Americans will die than died on 9-11. The 70th anniversary of the Korean War is this week over 121,000 Americans have now died in the pandemic. That's more than three times the number of Americans that died in the Korean War. Pride can be a powerful thing. It's Pride Month in America and all around the world. And that means empowerment, love, support, tolerance. Pride can be a virtue. Pride can be a virtue that can unite, bring people together and create a better world. But pride can also be a vice. It can be the brother of hubris, the sister of vanity. It can be an inflated sense of your own importance and what stops you from embracing change. Lives lost, futures smashed, viruses spread.
3: The stubborn souls are the losers. Passion slowly dies, and this romance
0: goes down to Foolish Pride. Foolish Pride is why so many stubbornly fight the changes needed to our police system. Foolish Pride is what drives people to defend racist Confederate statues, and the racist Confederate flag, and our racist president and foolish pride with a dose of the stupid is what drives them not to wear a damn mask Fool, foolish, foolish, pride enterprise. It's that foolish pride that propels President Mayhem to think he can fool us again. Foolish pride that propels his own followers to fill, well, one-third fill, arenas. It's foolish pride that propelled for far too long, far too many to ignore the threat that is Donald Trump. The threat that is systemic racism. The threat that is the coronavirus.
4: I like the decay but decay is another problem. So let's take this foolish pride problem and solve it now. When I talk about foolish pride, I mean
0: and taking different sides. So apparently there's a lot of songs about foolish pride. That one was from Eminem back when he was 15 years old and recorded in 1993. He later apologized for the racist lyrics that were in the song. He blamed it on youth and being angry over the breakup with a black girl. But it's foolish pride that allows our anger to manifest itself in ways that hurt others, that hurt ourselves, that hurt our country. And if America and Americans don't address, change, and prevent more of that foolish pride, it'll be our undoing. Like refusing to wear a mask. For far too long, far too many were not willing to make the sacrifice required for the greater good in preventing, confronting, and stopping Donald Trump. Now, like the defenders of the Confederate flag and the defenders of the racist statues and the defenders of the policies and systems that kept women, black people, gay people, foreign people, trans people, the defenders of Trump and Trump himself are only postponing the inevitable. The virus is coming, regardless of whether or not you think it's real. And racism has long been here, whether or not you think it's real. And Trump's damage and failures are here and must be confronted, whether or not you think they're real. Only foolish pride, compounded by ignorance, supercharged by fear, can slow down the progress, the change, the cleansing of the dirty parts of our past. From the dirtiness of the original sin to the dirtiness of our wars without sacrifice— to the dirtiness of Trumpism, only courage and sacrifice and vision and teamwork and tolerance and information will overcome it. Education is the mask against the virus that is Trump, that is racism, that is the stupid, because we need more of it than ever before, because the threats are greater than ever before, and because the spread is faster than ever before. America has to take off the masks that hide us and put on the masks that will empower us.
5: So, Dr. Newman, you're saying that everybody wears a mask?
2: That's correct, Wendy. We all wear masks, metaphorically speaking.
0: Unfortunately, the pride is still stopping too many from wearing masks. They don't want to wear a mask for a few hours or even a few minutes. They think their right to fun or to freedom or to foolish pride, is more important than the health of your grandparents, the health of your parents, or the health of the kid down the street with cystic fibrosis. They don't care about them, or him, or her, more than they care about being comfortable, or care about having fun. It's party time! No, it's not party time. It's wartime. And for all the people that did party, at bars, at beaches, at Trump rallies, throughout Memorial Day? Well, the virus thanks you. And for all the states that refuse to lock down, all the states that refuse to sacrifice, all the states that refuse to follow the science, what was predicted is coming to pass. I wish I was wrong a few months ago and a few weeks ago. But if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And if you were paying attention, you know... It always comes back around. It always comes back around. The virus always comes back around. But so do the helpers. And so do the fighters. And this spring, we had conversations with a number of bold frontline leaders in the pandemic, the protests, and the election. And throughout the first year of this show, we've talked to the helpers, the people who run into the fray. Now, we're going to talk to the fighters. The fighters who step into the arena to battle for what they believe in. Fighters like Ron Perlman in the last episode, our biggest episode ever, by the way. Fighters who are willing to take punches for America, for our future, for our grandchildren. But fighters who are also willing to throw punches political punches at people who spew hate, stop progress, or perpetuate inequality. We'll talk to fighters who are angry Americans for all the right reasons, and the spirit of fighters throughout our country's history, ranging from Harriet Tubman to John Lewis to Harvey Milk. The fighters for the future, the man or woman who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. And this summer, The arena is everywhere and expanding by the day from the hospitals of Phoenix to the streets of Minneapolis to the political primaries in New York, North Carolina and Kentucky from inside the Pentagon to inside public bathrooms to inside the Supreme Court. In this episode, we're joined by another courageous activist who is standing strong on the front lines of our unfolding political battlefields.
6: There's enough in everybody's life, and I am
0: her. Charlotte Clymer is a fighter. Charlotte is an Army veteran and one of the most influential trans activists in the world. She's gone from a trailer park in Texas, to Army infantry basic training at Fort Benning, to advocating for transgender people worldwide. Charlotte fights for herself and for others. Tough, patriotic, and sharp, she burst onto the political scene in 2018 after being denied access to a Washington, D.C., restaurant bathroom. A dynamic powerhouse on Twitter, the former press secretary at the largest and most powerful LGBTQ organization in the country, Human Rights Campaign. Charlotte has written for Glamour, Vice, NBC, and been a commentator on CBS Sunday morning. As a soldier, Charlotte carried the caskets of Americans killed in action. As an activist, she's carrying the stories of countless unheard voices.
7: So much of what folks in marginalized communities go through, like as, as you pointed out, is that we have a difficulty setting that's just a little higher than most people. And, you know, so um, if you are a woman, it's a little higher than men. If you are transgender, it's a little higher than cisgender people. If you are a person of color, it's higher than uh, white people. If you are religious minority and on and on and on. And for trans women and for trans people in general, we have to really watch our backs everywhere we go. Because, We are not only often conspicuous, but we find that people will make an issue out of us being in the same space that they are.
0: This Pride Month, in the wake of the historic Supreme Court decision protecting LGBTQ employees from discrimination based on sex, Charlotte takes us inside the life of a frontline fighter, deep in the most critical fights of our time. She breaks down Trump's politicization of the military the Pentagon's ridiculous trans ban. why Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign was historic, her favorite drink, if she'll go back in the army, and whether or not she'll run against Senator Ted Cruz back home in Texas. As the pandemic roars, as more of our fellow Americans die, as the summer begins, as the protests continue, as the statues fall, and as Trump's numbers crumble, we'll continue to bring the light and spark and contrast all that vicious heat, and we'll take some time to celebrate pride, even if there aren't pride parades this year, and even with many more steps needed on the road to equality in America and beyond. We'll remember to celebrate the leaders, recognize the victories, and recommit to the fight for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. But first,
3: freedom.
0: Before we get to our powerful and fun conversation with the fierce and fantastic Charlotte Clymer and the highlights of my Father's Day, an update on how Angry Americans stands on the podcast charts around the world, even as we celebrate the energy, diversity, and openness of pride, there are some issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And it has to begin with one of the three storms sweeping and swelling across our battered nation. As we formally kick off summer and get ready for what is sure to be a weird 4th of July, the pandemic has re-emerged and the protests have slowed a bit. And the virus is sucking up that extra oxygen and firing on all cylinders. (laughs) And it's bad worldwide. Total cases worldwide have now passed 9.4 million. That's up over 1 million since our last episode. And it's almost the entire population of Honduras or Hungary. Brazil is still gaining, exploding, with almost 1.2 million cases and over 50,000 deaths. Brazil is now firmly established as South America's Italy. And the World Health Organization reported the largest single day increase in virus infections at more than 183,000 new cases in one 24 hour period. Brazil had the highest spike with over 54,000 cases, and the U.S. was next with 36,000 cases. Yay for us! We'll never beat Brazil in soccer, but we're winning here. So much winning. And now the International Monetary Fund is projecting that the global economy is going to get hit even harder than originally predicted. They're forecasting the global economy will shrink by 4.9 percent, up from the 3 percent it predicted in April. And it projects the U.S. economy will shrink by 8 percent. And thanks to President Mayhem and a wide range of national and local leadership failures, we should take no pride in recognizing that America remains at the top of the worst leaderboard in the entire world. We continue to have the world's highest number of COVID cases, 2.43 million. That's more than the population of every city in America, except for Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. And by next episode, it'll be more than Chicago. It's already more than Houston, which, by the way, is now out of hospital beds. And the number of Americans dead in the pandemic is now equal to the entire population of Topeka, Kansas, and pretty close to New Haven, Connecticut. Imagine if those entire cities were wiped out. That's what's happened in a few months in this country. Until we get a vaccine, if we get a vaccine, the virus will always come back around, especially to places infected with the stupid like Florida. So get a grip,
3: take a sip of that, see your eye. Trucks jacked up, flat bills flip back. Yeah, you can find us where the party's at. This is how we roll.
0: Yeah, Florida likes to roll with the stupid. Florida coronavirus cases have reached record totals with more than 1,400 more cases than the previous high. And remember Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the king of the stupid, the guy who kept open beaches, the guy who refused to shut things down, and the guy who said this back in May?
6: Our data is available. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation otherwise is just typical partisan narrative trying to be spun. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Court or D.C., everyone up there we have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded. And I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative. It challenges their assumption. So they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that they're a black helicopter circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you.
0: It hadn't happened at eight weeks, but it happened at 12 weeks. And that bridge in Brooklyn you'd like to sell us? Well, you'd have to quarantine for two weeks if you come here before you can sell it, visit it, or even go near it. And I love Florida. Parts of Florida, anyway. My in-laws are there right now. And lots of my family is there right now. And if they're listening, or if you see them, or if you see Ron DeSantis on the beach in Florida, or especially if he comes to New York, near the Brooklyn Bridge, or maybe near Fox News headquarters, or near Trump Tower, or near me. Don't stand, don't stand so, don't stand so
2: close to me.
0: Don't stand so close to me. Or each other. And don't go to any damn rallies. There aren't too many. Trump's the only one in the world doing them. And the Trump-Tulsa-Oklahoma rally happened. It was the first major indoor event of any kind in the developed world. Nobody else anywhere is doing this shit. And it was a massive flop. Even Fox News could see it. Here's Fox News' Chris Wallace hammering Trump campaign spokesperson Mercedes Schlapp.
8: Mercedes, if I can, Yes. the fact is the president talks about the attendance at his events. As we all know, he made a big issue of the attendance at his inauguration. He talks about how he can fill an, uh, an arena and that Joe Biden can't. He didn't fill an arena last night and you well, guys I mean, were so Joe far Biden- off. And wait, let me if I may finish and you guys were so far off that you had planned an outdoor rally and there wasn't an overflow crowd and I watching the coverage and talking to Mark Meredith on the ground today protesters did not stop people from coming to that rally. The fact is Oh,
9: absolutely they people did. Didn't show I'm off. telling you there were people I'm I'm telling you there were people and families that didn't want to br- couldn't bring their children because of concerns of the protesters.
0: It wasn't protesters that kept people away. It wasn't Black Lives Matter that kept people away. It wasn't Black people that kept people away. It wasn't Democrats that kept people away. It wasn't Cuomo that kept people away. It was the virus. It was the virus. Americans aren't stupid. They're slow sometimes, but not stupid. Even most Trump supporters. And now, days later, and entirely predictably, Tulsa's number of COVID cases just exploded. In just a few days, they went from less than 50 to over 250, a five-fold increase in just about a week. So maybe even Trump supporters in a place like Oklahoma are concerned, because Dr. Fauci is definitely concerned. Right now, the next couple of weeks are going to be critical
2: in our ability to address those surgings that we're seeing in Florida In Texas, in Arizona, and in other states, they're not the only ones that are having a difficulty. Bottom line, Mr. Chairman, it's a mixed bag. Some good,
0: and some now we have a problem with. Some now we have a problem with. Boy, do we! from the time the pandemic started, I've told you, there are two kinds of state leaders, regardless of party. One, the kind that are trying to contain the virus and win the war, and a second kind that is trying to kill the rest of us. The second group is infected badly, not just with the virus, but something that is much meaner, much nastier, and much more contagious. (laughs) Of course, they are infected with the stupid. And by now, there's no more spinning. There's no more dancing. The virus is upon us all. And if you thought you could pray it away or ignore it away or hope it away, you're finding out that hope is not a course of action. The virus doesn't give a shit about your games or your political spin or your business concerns or your desire to go to bars or church. The virus doesn't care about your summer plans or your reelection, the virus is coming. And if you leave your back door open a crack, the virus is kicking it in. The virus is like Pac-Man gobbling up as much as it can before it gets caught by the ghosts or the vaccine. That's the virus. And when protesters converge or Trump rallies happen, it's like the virus just gobbled up a massive power pellet. That's what a Trump rally is. It's a giant super spreader power pellet for the virus. Ask the good people of Tulsa, like this guy.
8: I know COVID is real. Uh, we had a friend who died from COVID, and um. And his uh, son was uh, on a ventilator, he almost died. So we know it's real, but then at the same time, uh, you know, you don't know what's the facts, you know, because you feel like maybe one side plays it one way and the other side plays it another. So me personally, I don't really know, but I do know this, that even the ones that are very concerned about COVID, when we spent time with them the last five days, they were, they were interacting without their masks
3: normally.
0: The virus loves him. His friends are on a ventilator, but no masks. At a Trump rally, no masks. He is infected badly with the stupid, and he likely infected others. People became infected at the Tulsa rally, including, we now know, some members of the president's Secret Service detail. The foolish pride and the stupid have now propelled the virus in nine other states that are seeing record-high numbers. Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Washington, Utah, Texas, they're all getting hammered. And many of the newest clusters of cases have been tied to athletics, as student-athletes are going back to campus and professional teams are hoping to play sports again. At least 23 football players at Clemson have been infected, at least 10 at Iowa State, and at least five football players at Texas State, and there are others. A bunch of professional sports teams like the Philadelphia Phillies and the Tampa Bay Lightning have also gotten cases. And new outbreaks in some cities are already overwhelming hospitals in places like Houston. And in Las Vegas, just weeks after casinos reopened with no masks, a handful of employees from casinos, restaurants and hotels have tested positive. No shit. That was the best bet in Vegas. And it's not limited to just athletics and casinos. It appears that at least four cases of the virus were tied to the Cruisin' Chubby's Gentlemen's Club in the Wisconsin Dells. You don't say. A strip club passed along the virus?
7: Surprise,
0: surprise, surprise. So the club was shut down after positive tests to sanitize and work with the health department on safety measures, which included getting better airflow into the building. Apparently, the club had already reduced seating and tried to distance patrons from each other and the entertainers, although that can be hard. You think? Well, looks like Chris Rock was right.
2: Oh, there's champagne in the champagne room, but you don't want champagne. You want sex, and there's no sex
0: in the champagne room. There is no sex in the champagne room, but there is champagne. And there is coronavirus. So apparently it needs to be said. Stay out of casinos. Stay out of churches. Stay out of bars. And stay out of strip clubs. It would be hard to think of a worse place to go in a pandemic, really. There's not enough Purell in the world to sanitize Cruisin' Chubby's Gentlemen's Club in Wisconsin. Now, the tables have turned. And New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has made a pretty bold and i think a reasonable move so we're announcing today uh, a joint travel advisory people coming in from states that have a high infection rate must quarantine for 14 days Uh, and we have a calibration for the infection rate and any state that goes over that infection rate uh, that state will be subject to the quarantine Uh, It's only for the simple reason that uh, we worked very hard to get the viral transmission rate down. We don't want to see it go up because a lot of people come into this region and they could literally bring the infection with them. It wouldn't be malicious or malevolent, but it would still be real. Uh, So we are jointly instituting that travel advisory uh, today because what happens in New York, happens in New Jersey, happens in Connecticut. So he's got a message for all the governors that might want to drop into New York City for some pizza or some low per capita infection rate. You governors didn't listen. You tried to be popular. You hurt your people. And now, if you want to come to New York, sorry, no can do. Cuomo's taking a page from Trump, and he's sealing it up. You can come to town, but fire up your Netflix account, because once you get here, you are going to be restricted. If you've got dreams of going to New York strip clubs or going to see Hamilton or going to sell someone the Brooklyn Bridge, you're going to be disappointed because Cuomo's got a message for you. Seriously learn from New York, listen to New York, especially the first responders. We've always focused on and supported first responders in this show. There's one that I want to bring attention to this episode. Anthony Almohera is a New York City paramedic and wrote a very powerful piece in the Washington Post. And I'm just going to read parts of it because I think you need to hear what he has to say. And everyone needs to hear what he has to say. These are his words. I've been on the scene And more than 200 deaths, trying to revive people, consoling their families. But you can't even be bothered to stay six feet away and wear a mask because why? He continued, nobody wants to know about what I do. People might pay us lip service and say we're heroes, but our stories aren't the kind anyone actually wants to hear about. Kids in this country grow up with toy fire trucks or maybe playing cops and robbers. But who dreams of becoming a paramedic? That's ambulances. That's death and vulnerability. The scary stuff. We're taught in this culture to shun illness like it's something shameful. We'd rather pretend everything's fine. We look the other way. That's what's happening now in New York. We just had 20,000 some people die in this city. And already the crowds are lining back outside of restaurants and jamming into bars. The virus is still out there. We respond to 911 calls for COVID every day. I've been on the scene at more than 200 of these deaths, trying to revive people, consoling their families. But you can't even be bothered to stay six feet apart and wear a mask. Why? Because you're a tough guy? Because it makes you look weak? You'd rather ignore the whole thing and pretend you're invincible? Some of us can't stop thinking about it. I woke up this morning to about 60 new text messages from paramedics who are barely holding it together. Some are still sick with the virus. At one point, we had 25% of the EMTs in the city out sick. Others are living in their cars so they don't risk bringing it home to their families. They're depressed. They're emotionally exhausted. They're drinking too much. They're lashing out at their kids. They have night terrors and panic attacks and all kinds of outbursts. I've got five paramedics in the ground from the virus already and a few more on ventilators. Another rookie EMT just committed suicide. He was having trouble coping with what he was seeing. He was a kid, 23 years old. He won't be the last. I have medics who come to me every day and say, is this PTSD I'm feeling? But technically, PTSD comes after the event and we're not there yet. It's ongoing stress and trauma and we might have months to go. He continued. Do you know how much EMTs make in New York City? We start at $35,000. We top out at $48,000 after five years. That's nothing. That's a middle finger. It's about 40% less than fire, police, and corrections. And those guys deserve what they get. But we have three times the call volume of fire. There are EMTs on my team who've been pulling double shifts in a pandemic and performing life support for 16 hours. Then they go home and they have to drive Uber to pay their rent. I'm more than 15 years on the job and I still work two side gigs. One of my guys does part-time at a grocery store. Heroes, right? The anger is blinding. One thing the pandemic has made clear to me is that our country has become a joke in terms of how it disregards working people and poor people the rampant inequality, the racism. Mistakes were made at the top in terms of how we were prepared for this virus, and we paid for it down here at the bottom. The most 911 calls we ever had was back on September 11th, and we broke that record every day for two weeks straight. My station is right in Brooklyn's Chinatown, so we get a lot of new Chinese immigrants, sometimes 10 or 12 people living in a small place. They tend not to call 911 unless it's absolutely necessary but they were calling. One woman was apologizing for bothering us while we were trying to get a pulse back on her uncle. The Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in Sunset Park got hit hard. Sometimes those families will pray over you while you're doing CPR. The Middle Eastern neighborhoods in Bay Ridge got hit. The African-American communities where hypertension's a big thing, the nursing homes in Far Rockaway, the housing projects in East Flatbush. We weren't carrying too many stretchers into fancy brownstones. I had one guy with COVID who was talking to me in his fifth floor apartment. He was breathing heavy, so he loaded him on the stretcher, and by the time the elevator hit the lobby, he didn't have a pulse. I went to another high-rise for an unresponsive elderly woman, and then I realized two days before, we were in the same place because her husband had dropped. Both of them died. Sometimes we had 400 emergency calls sitting on hold. People were waiting hours for an ambulance on the more minor stuff. I pronounced more deaths in the first two weeks of April than I have in my career. I got one call at the height of the madness. Another cardiac arrest. It was a Latin guy, young guy, unresponsive, and passed out in a room with bunk beds. There wasn't enough space to work, so we dragged him out in the living room to start giving him CPR. The guy had no pulse. That's clinical death, but biological death doesn't come till about six minutes later. That's our window to bring you back. That's why we do this job. Now, this guy's 31. He's strong, healthy. His mother told us he had just gone out. As a medic, you hear that and your eyes get big. It's like, okay, maybe this is one we can save. It's four guys and me. That's the crew. The two EMTs were bagging him up to get oxygen in his lungs. The medics were starting to intubate and calculating the meds. Everything they can do for you in a hospital, EMS brings to you. We carry 60 medications. We hook up the heart monitor. It all happens fast, and there's barely time to talk. It's a scalpel, needle, put in the IV, pace it, shock it, check the heart rhythms. It's like a symphony, and you have to know your part. The team kept working, and I went over to get information from the mother. There was a little girl standing there behind her, seven years old and it turns out she's the daughter. They told me he'd been sick for four or five days, but he worked at a bodega, and he couldn't afford to take off. He'd come home from work and collapsed a few minutes later. Now I'm getting upset. Here we're supposed to be this great society, and this guy can't even miss one paycheck. There's no safety net. The system we have is broken, and this seven-year-old is seeing her dad get CPR. We kept working. After a few minutes, we got a pulse back. I told the family, he's not out of the woods yet, but we might have a shot here. We rushed him into the truck and over to the hospital, and then he died a while later. I did 14 cardiac arrests that day. I didn't save anybody. The thing about being a paramedic is you need to have some reservoir of hope. The job is the ultimate backstage pass. It can make you believe in humanity, but can also suck the humanity out of you. You see death, suffering, grief in its rawest forms. I've been shot at on this job. I've been beaten and cursed at. And then every year, we go to the second chance brunch, and we get to meet some of the people we saved. There's no drug on the planet like that. There's no job that matters more. It keeps you going. But then we came into this virus, and we weren't bringing people back. The virus kept winning. It always ends the same way. I'd go park the truck at the beach after a double and try to calm myself down and gather my thoughts. I gained weight during this pandemic. I don't sleep well anymore. Emotionally, I've been feeling a bit numb. They teach you as a Buddhist that life is suffering, and I believe that. You have to stay in the suffering. You can't deny reality and turn the other way. I've been in therapy for 17 years, and lately, what keeps coming up is that reservoir of hope. It's starting to feel more and more empty. Our call volume has been down for the last month, but I'm worried it won't stay there. I don't have much faith in what we are anymore. America's supposed to be the best, right? So why aren't we united at all? Why aren't we taking care of each other? The virus is hanging around, waiting for us to make more mistakes. And I'm afraid that we will. That's the end of the piece. We definitely will. We're lucky to have leaders like Anthony Almohara on the front lines. He's a hero. He's a helper. And we're going to need him. And if he listens to this, I want him to know that we appreciate him we hear him, and we're going to fight for him. We talked in past episodes about how the pandemic is disproportionately impacting certain communities like mothers and African Americans. Check out our episodes with Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner and Baratunde Thurston for more. And this Pride Month, we also know how the virus disproportionately hurts LGBTQ people. They have increased exposure, economic disparities, and barriers to care. Many LGBTQ people are employed in the sectors that are heavily impacted by the crisis. They also face economic disparities compared to their non-LGBTQ peers, which means they often lack the resources they need to stay afloat during the COVID crisis. This information comes from the HRC Foundation, and they have an analysis of the top five industries that LGBTQ adults work in in the United States. LGBTQ people work in the industries that are getting hardest hit. 1.5 million who work in restaurants and food industries. 2.1 million work in hospitals. Almost a million work in K-12 education. Almost a million work in colleges and universities. And half a million work in retail. The virus is getting to everyone. In every place. Outside of New Zealand, there's really no place to hide. So wear a damn mask. If you go to a protest... If you go to a restaurant, if you go to a Trump rally, ugh. if you go to Chubby's, wear a damn mask. Most people around the world are realizing it now. And he took way too long to come out and hit Trump. But now even this guy is on the mask kick.
8: Hello, neighbors. I'm Jim Mattis. And I'm here to talk about that nasty little virus, COVID. We got introduced to it about six months ago. And it's clear this little bugger is not going away on its own. We're going to have to listen to Dr. Amy Person, our public health official. We're going to have to work together on this to get our friends and neighbors back to work. Get to phase two and start working back toward normal. So let's wear those face coverings and let's work together on this to beat COVID.
0: So former Secretary of Defense General Mattis says wear a mask. I'm sure President Mayhem will try to fire him again just for that PSA, but he can't. It also looks like at this point, the only effective guy Trump hasn't fired is thankfully still working in government. Dr. Fauci is back in the headlines and he actually has some hope for all of us. He thinks a vaccine is likely and one is looking especially promising. You've probably
2: heard that one of those vaccines and there are more than one. There are several that are moving along at various paces. One of them will enter phase three study in July. This is one that has already shown in preliminary studies some very favorable response in the animal models that were developed. There will be others that will follow one month, two months, three months later. Although you can never guarantee at all the safety and efficacy of a vaccine until you actually test it in the field, we feel cautiously optimistic based on the concerted effort and the fact that we are taking financial risks Not risks to safety, not risks to the integrity of the science, but financial risks to be able to be ahead of the game so that when, and I believe it will be when and not if, we get favorable candidates with good results, we will be able to make them available to the American public, as I said to this committee months ago, within a year from when we started, which would put us at the end of this calendar year and the beginning of 2021.
0: So after what is looking increasingly like a rough summer and what could be a very rough fall and potentially a brutal winter, Dr. Fauci might have a Christmas present for America. And Dr. Fauci would be like the Santa Claus for all Americans if he delivers a vaccine. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m.,
9: Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. You'll be here to take pictures with all the children. Yeah. Just keep your receipts. 10 a.m. tomorrow. 10 a.m. tomorrow. Santa's coming to town. Yes. You sign this for <gasps> Oh,
0: hi. Santa's coming. And Christmas is coming early for another group of people. Statue makers. Because they are in high demand. America is going to have a lot of empty pedestals and need of new statues all across America. Because the second firestorm hitting America continues to expand and change and burn hot. The civil unrest, protests, tension continue all across America from Oakland to DC and now worldwide. George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, Rashad Brooks, they're now names that America knows which is a huge testament to the success of the Black Lives Matter movement. One that this Pride Month has now expanded to include many powerful LGBTQ organizers. And Black Lives Matter also includes many LGBTQ people. And cries of Trans Lives Matter have now also begun to break through. We'll go deeper on that coming up with activist, author, and veteran Charlotte Clymer. But the flames of the protests continue to rise and fall and expand and contract, just like the virus. And just like the virus, they're not dying down. And I've laid out in past episodes how I think the George Floyd murder may become the My massacre of policing. It could be taught to generations of cops as an example of what not to do. And those conversations are finally happening that have been generations in the making. And they're coming in new ways from new voices. And there's one that I think is especially powerful that I want to share. It's a Welsh actor named Charles T. Dale. This video was posted by the great Rex Chapman on Twitter and it went viral for a bit, for good reason. And you probably haven't heard it. And you'll definitely never forget it.
4: I'm really not a racist, but all lives matter, see? I'm really not a racist, because I won't drink Yorkshire tea. I'm really not a racist, they look better down the gym. I'm really not a racist, but it's well known, they can't swim. I'm really not a racist, do we have to make amends? I'm really not a racist, I've got loads of colored friends. I'm really not a racist, now I think this country's fair i'm really not a racist oh can i touch your hair i'm really not a racist but you're not our type ideally i'm really not a racist but where'd you come from really i'm really not a racist on the phone you don't sound black i'm really not a racist ever thought of going back i'm really not a racist must be cold for you outdoors i'm really not a racist that's a nice car is it yours I'm really not a racist. Come on, could you take a joke? I'm really not a racist. Can you get me any coke? I'm really not a racist. Nah, you got me wrong by miles. I'm really not a racist. Love them watermelon smiles. I'm really not a racist. I'm blessed, you get me fam. I'm really not a racist. Oh, fucking hell.
0: I am. I wanted to play the whole thing for you because when you have a podcast, you can. And if you want to hear it again, you can rewind it right now and listen to it again and share it with your friends, with your family, with your kids, because it's one of the most insightful things I've heard in the last couple of weeks. And we need insight. And we also need accountability. And. There's some good news in that regard. The suspects in Ahmaud Arbery's killings have been indicted on murder charges. And it's about damn time. The three white men accused of killing Mr. Arbery, a black guy who was chased while jogging in his own neighborhood, were indicted on nine counts, including felony murder. So the fights for justice are happening in the streets, and in the media, and on Capitol Hill, and on the racetrack. And there's one leader that's leading the pack and continuing to break ground. NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace. Now, Bubba Wallace is the only black driver in NASCAR and has faced all kinds of shit throughout his entire career. And now he's changing history. He's like the Jackie Robinson of NASCAR. And here he is with Trevor Noah.
7: Talk me through, like, what that felt
2: like, like when, when NASCAR comes to you and says there's a noose, because I think a lot of people may not understand the world that you're in and what your journey has been in from the time you came out and said, we need to get rid of the Confederate flag.
9: Yeah, uh, ever since then, I knew um, it would be a whirlwind of, of, of emotions, of comments, of hate, of, of positive light as well. And, uh, ever since the removal of the Confederate flag and ever, ever since being vocal in, in, you know, of of being a human being, it's not about being vocal, it's about being human, being a human being, like you said. And I've been proud to, to kind of, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't really know how to word it. Like I said, I'm still learning, but to step away from Bubba Wallace, the athlete, and to step up as Bubba Wallace, the human for the first time and not be so, I don't know if I can touch that. I don't know if I can say these types right, of things. Right, right. I'm letting that guard down. And I do it with the utmost respect of all of my partners, my sponsors, my race team, people that are supporting me. They, With me doing this, they have to know the bigger picture of everything. It's not about racing. It's about race.
0: Thanks to Bubba Wallace, Confederate flags at NASCAR are coming down. And the stereotypes are coming down. And the statues are also coming down. Fast. So from coast to coast, they're going down. Norfolk, Virginia, Portsmouth, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Louisville, Kentucky, Jacksonville, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, Nashville, Tennessee, all the way to Bristol in the U.K. The statues are coming down. But despite the progress and despite how many people are being educated about the systemic racism that's permeated our military, our statues and our systems, the stupid continues to flow. And it flows like a river through certain members of Congress, and especially through one Congressman Louis Gomert. Listen to this.
2: But to me, Barr's crowning
8: dishonesty is the portrait of Edward Levy that a Mr. recent. Chairman, New Chairman, I would York ask times times say,
2: uh, that the sergeant at arms be called to upon to stop the disruption of this meeting. I can't hear this witness. This is a very important witness.
8: Yeah, well, he's way beyond the chair. and if there are no rules about when people can talk, there's no rules about when you can make noise. The gentleman makes a a good point, and the Chair will enforce the five-minute rule.
6: Witness will proceed. The Chair is not enforcing a five-minute rule. The witness will conclude. Mr.
8: Chairman, this is outrageous. Do you have no respect for the rules whatsoever? The witness will conclude. He's two minutes beyond concluding, and you don't let us have that kind of time. You gavel down immediately. You're being grossly unfair. This man had a written statement, good. and he knew to cut it to five minutes. He couldn't do it. Either we have rules or we don't. The gentleman will suspend. The witness will conclude. Thank you. Well, then in we closing, can keep making it needs noise. to be said that Bill Barr does regularly lie in ways that that impact official actions. Mr.
1: Chairman, there is not order in the room.
8: There's a, a banging. No, That's there's
6: certainly respectful. not. The Mr. Chairman, here. would you have Gene Cooper removed? The gentleman, the gentleman,
8: the witness will conclude. That's what you said while well ago, and he didn't conclude. The gentleman will suspend. The witness will conclude.
0: That obnoxious banging on the table, that temper tantrum that I wouldn't even tolerate from my four-year-old, that's Republican Congressman Louis Gohmert. He's a member of Congress representing the 1st District of Texas, which apparently encompasses over 12 counties stretching nearly 120 miles down the eastern border of Texas. Now, Louis Gohmert is famous for being obnoxious. He takes special pride in it. And that's why... I take special pride in this, like Mayor de Blasio, like Governor Brian Kemp, like Governor Christy Nome, like Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, like Senator Rand Paul, like Vice President Mike Pence, like the mobs of morons who took guns to the Michigan Capitol to protest stay-at-home orders, and like VA Secretary Robert Wilkie, who pushed hydroxychloroquine on dying vets on Memorial Day, or the looters after the George Floyd murder. Or the radicals who totally want to eliminate the police, Paw Patrol, and The Wire. And, of course, like professional jackass and Florida Congressman Matt Gaetz. They've all paved the way for this one. Representative Louie Gomert, this is your first, I'm sure not your last, recognition of all that you do and all that you are. Congressman Gomert, this Pride Month, you can take particular pride in knowing this one's for you. I We may need to sick Ron Perlman on that guy. But the stupid continues to spread across the cabinet and throughout the Trump administration and most aggressively inside the Pentagon and at the Department of Defense. So as you know, Trump made a visit to West Point exposing the entire graduating class to the coronavirus in the middle of a pandemic. And he had a little trouble with the ramp. He couldn't make it down the ramp and had a real hard time walking down a ramp. And he explained it at his rally this weekend.
3: I just saluted almost 600 times. I just made a big speech. I sat for other speeches. I'm being baked. I'm being baked like a cake. I said, General, there's no way I can make it down that ramp without falling on my ass, General. I have no railing. True. It's true. So, I said, is there like something else around? Sir, the ramp is ready to go. Grab me, sir. Grab me. I didn't really want to grab him. You know why? Because I said, that'll be a story, too. So now I have a choice. I can stay up there for another couple of hours and wait till I'm rescued. Or I can go down this really steep, really, 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 it's an ice skating rink, it's brutal. So I said, General, get ready because I may grab you so fast. Because I can't fall with a fake news watching. If I fall, If I fall, I remember when President Ford fell out of the plane, you remember? I remember when another president, nice man, threw up in Japan and they did slow motion replays. True. Right? It's true. I don't want that, General. Now he's standing there, big, strong guy, and he's got these shoes, but they're loaded with rubber on the bottom. Because I looked, the first thing I did, I looked at his shoes, then I looked at mine. Very, very slippery. So I end up saying, okay, General, let's go. I will only grab you if I need you. That's not a good story. Falling would be a disaster. It turned out to be worse than anything. I would have been better off if I fell and slid down the damn ramp.
0: It's just the latest example of the madness surrounding the Department of Defense under President Mayhem, which includes Fort Benning, the home of the infantry, the place that I served and Charlotte Clymer served that apparently now has an outbreak among two training battalions. 640 soldiers showed up and tested negative. 22 days later, 142 had tested positive. And the Army's not going to give us substantive updates or cases on recovery. But this is an example of what's happening inside the military, which also wasn't prepared for the virus. And the turbulence inside the Department of Defense continues. Four senior leaders have resigned in one week as Secretary of Defense Jesper, because we call him Jesper, because he says yes to everything that Trump says and clearly does not have control of the situation. His leaders are leaving and he's on shaky ground with Trump and our enemies are celebrating. And they're especially celebrating this week because Trump has again announced that he's pulling U.S. troops out of Germany and that some will head to Poland. He keeps saying that America has 52,000 troops there when the actual number is 35,000. And he again blasts Germany for their lack of defense spending.
3: We're going to be reducing Germany very substantially down to about 25,000 troops. We actually had 52,000, but we'll be moving it down to about 25,000. Germany's paying a very small fraction of what they're supposed to be paying. They should be paying 2%, and they're paying a little bit more than 1%, depending on how you calculate. You could also calculate they pay, that they're paying less than 1%. But uh, if you assume they're paying 1%, that's a tremendous...
0: Uh, Delinquency. Let's use that word, delinquency. Now, President Duda of Poland was in the U.S. this week, and even he believes it's a mistake to withdraw U.S. troops from Europe. So President Duda stood next to Trump and said that withdrawing troops is a mistake. He sees it. Everybody sees it, except Trump and Putin, of course. And the chaos continues inside our nation's military as the Oklahoma National Guard got stuck assigned to Trump's Tulsa rally this weekend. And the politicization of our military continues under the Trump administration as the Oklahoma National Guard got stuck assigned to Trump's rally this weekend in Tulsa. And the Washington, D.C. Guard got dealt another shitty hand, this time thrust into another highly politicized and flammable situation. The D.C. National Guard has been activated this time to protect the Capitol's monuments. Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy has signed a memo activating up to 400 D.C. National Guard troops to provide security for local monuments and critical infrastructure. So we continue to deploy our National Guard around the country for all kinds of crazy political bullshit. And while we do that, we're not even paying them. There's a great reporter at Stars and Stripes named Stephen Baynon, B-E-Y-N-O-N. He's also in the National Guard. He's in the Maryland National Guard, and he tweets about his experiences both as a reporter and as a National Guard soldier. And he wrote this week that seemingly most soldiers in my Maryland National Guard battalion have not been paid since June 1st and will not be paid until July 1st for their COVID and protest response duty. Soldiers went a month without pay after leaving their civilian jobs. That wouldn't be acceptable at a regular job. No, he's absolutely right. So just to add one more cherry on top of this, in addition to all the other Pentagon chaos, some of our National Guard troops aren't even getting paid for COVID and protest response duty. Where's Jesper and President Mayhem now? This is the same group of people that just one year ago imposed a trans ban and totally disrupted our military and banned people who had already been openly serving. We'll get into more of that with Charlotte Clymer in just a couple minutes. But our enemies are celebrating. They're celebrating the chaos. They're celebrating the weak leadership. And they're celebrating the pandemic. Don't forget about the Department of Veterans Affairs. The place that recently recognized Pride Month by having a secretary defend a display of swastikas on government property and oppose updating a motto to include women. It's an agency that acts like it's 1920 instead of 2020. So we know there's been a lot of foolish pride at the White House, and especially in states like Texas, Arizona, and Florida. And we knew this day would come. I predicted this day would come. And I wish I was wrong, but it's turned out just like I predicted at VA. They said they had enough PPE when they didn't. They said they had everything under control when they didn't. They said they had a low infection rate because they weren't doing enough testing. And then they reopened hospitals as quickly as possible. And now it's all come back around. Active coronavirus cases at VA patients jumped 36% in one week. Leo Shane at the Military Times and Abby Bennett at Connecting Vets continue to lead the great reporting that far too few read, but if you do read, you will understand and I will share with you now. There are at least 2,300 active cases among patients at 129 department medical centers across the country. Those are just the ones reported, and a small number have been tested. But even so, that's more than 500 cases in the last week alone, and 68% higher than the department's low number at the end of May. But reliably, the VA continues to echo the president, loyally putting his needs above the veterans that they should serve. Press Secretary Christina Knoll, who is the Baghdad Bob of VA now, says that figures, quote, are not the best measure of the department's performance fighting COVID-19 because more testing could also lead to higher case counts, including among those who lack symptoms. Yes, that's exactly why they are important. More testing will only lead to higher case counts if there are higher case counts. And guess what else? 11 sites have added 20 or more active cases in the last seven days. And guess where they are? They're in all the places that VA designated as lead sites, places they pushed to reopen. Places like Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, Texas. You seeing a trend here? The South Texas Veterans Healthcare System in San Antonio, which had just nine active cases in May, now has 149. That facility added 110 cases in the last week alone. So, yes, if you test, you will undoubtedly find more positives, especially in places that reopen too soon, are never really closed, or have a lot of positives. The other two lead sites that have large jumps in active cases in recent days are in Charleston, South Carolina, and Tucson, Arizona. Ten others have seen an increase since the start of the month, and here's where they are. San Antonio, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, Texas, Orlando, Florida, Bay Pines, Florida, Greater Los Angeles, Tampa, Florida, Long Beach, California, Columbia, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, and Southern Arizona. After San Antonio, the most active sites are Phoenix, Pabines, Florida, Houston, Tampa in Florida, and Orlando in Florida. Texas and Florida, just like on the civilian side, have been among the states that have seen the biggest increase in cases in recent days. And not only are more veterans getting it, veterans are more likely to die. Over 8% of VA patients who contract the virus have eventually died. That's well above the 6% death rate among all Americans. So cases are up 82% in three weeks, as Secretary of VA Wilkie continues to implement the Trump agenda of pushing to reopen with no focus on testing. Less than 300,000 vets have been tested in the entire system of over 9 million patients since the pandemic began. I've talked about this before, but New York State has tested 51,000 people yesterday. So New York State, just one state, will take six days to test the same number of people the VA has tested nationally in six months. The Bronx, one county, one borough in New York City, has tested 297,000 people. That's more than the 285,000 tests administered by the entire VA nationally since the pandemic began. So one county in New York City has tested more than the VA has across the entire nation. And there's one last update we've got for you. We've been tracking on what's going on in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where so many veterans have died. And the Massachusetts Secretary of Veterans Affairs has finally resigned. Amazing it took this long. But after the Holyoke disaster, it must happen at the highest levels. There has to be some kind of accountability from the Massachusetts governor to Secretary Wilkie to President Trump. And now there's a report on the whole messy situation. It turns out that leaders at Holyoke made, quote, substantial errors and, quote, baffling decisions in responding to the coronavirus pandemic, which claimed the lives of at least 76 residents, according to an independent investigation. The report found the leadership team made decisions that were, quote, utterly baffling from an infection control perspective. Among them was a decision to move veterans from one dementia unit into another, both of which housed veterans who already had the virus. So on March 27th, they decided to consolidate 40 veterans from two lockdown dementia units in one space designed to hold 25. Each of the units had some COVID 19 cases at the time, but the investigation found that those patients were consolidated with those who were asymptomatic rather than being isolated. The report found, quote, complete mayhem in the record keeping system and said that the home fell short of its mission to, quote, provide care with honor and dignity. But on Tuesday, Secretary of the Massachusetts Department of Veteran Services, Francisco Urena, resigned, saying, quote, I am very sorry. I tried my best. And now at least four investigations, state and federal, have been launched into the outbreak at the Holyoke facility. So almost 100 veterans died. And reports and resignations are not enough. People need to go to jail. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Because nobody took any pride in their work or in the duty they were assigned. And the accountability needs to start at the home, go up to Governor Baker, and all the way to the president if necessary. There needs to be accountability at the local level and at the national level. And that accountability may come, finally, in November. Because that third storm that rocks and rolls across our country is quietly and steadily rumbling on. I'm talking about the 2020 election. And here's the headline. Biden's taken a big lead as voters are apparently rejecting Trump on the virus and race relations. A new New York Times Siena College poll found that Biden is ahead of Trump by 14 points. He's leading big among women and non white voters, of course, and cutting into his support with white voters. While Trump doubles down on the stupid, Biden is doubling down on alternatives. And the Democrats have decided they will hold an almost entirely virtual presidential nominating convention in August. It's going to be in Milwaukee. They're going to use online streaming and live broadcasts instead of having everybody in one giant indoor facility. Biden will be there to accept the nomination in person, but there are going to be no big crowds. So not even during the Civil War or World War II did the two major parties abandon in-person conventions with crowded arenas. And Liz Smith, Pete Buttigieg's comp chief, had a good breakdown on Twitter. If you haven't heard our episode with Pete Buttigieg, go back and check that out from December as when he was really surging in the campaign and Liz Smith was leading his comms. But she said, this is how you do it. Biden and the Democrats are eating Trump's lunch on how to hold a convention in 2020. One, keep promise to accept the nomination in Wisconsin. Two, innovate, bring people in from outside politics to produce a new convention experience. Three, don't kill people in the process. She's right. And the RNC has confirmed its official business will still be conducted in Charlotte. But Trump says he plans to accept his nomination in Jacksonville, Florida, because the state wouldn't guarantee Republicans the ability to hold a large scale event in Charlotte's NBA arena. And we know Trump will be rolling with Pence, or at least we assume he will. But on the Biden side, the VP sweepstakes rolls on and 13 different women are now reported to be up for consideration. So Biden's deep in his search for a running mate, and he's got more than a dozen potential candidates, all of them women. And the women under consideration include Kamala Harris, senator from California, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, Val Demings, a congresswoman from Florida, and the former police chief in Orlando, Susan Rice, national security advisor and ambassador to the UN, and a guest on this show earlier this year. You should check that out. Michelle Luan Grisham, the governor of New Mexico. And Senator Tammy Duckworth, senator from Illinois, Iraq vet, double amputee, and retired Army lieutenant colonel. Tammy Baldwin, senator from Wisconsin and the first openly gay person to win a seat in the Senate. Karen Bass, a congresswoman from California and the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. Stacey Abrams, apparently still in the running, the former Democratic leader from the Georgia House of Representatives. Gina Raimondo, governor of Rhode Island. Maggie Hassan, the senator from New Hampshire. And Amy Klobuchar, senator from Minnesota, has withdrawn from consideration. So those are all the women that could be the VP for Joe Biden. And there's a big piece in The New York Times about Tammy Duckworth, who's a very fascinating choice. She thinks she can push back against Trump in ways others can't. She's on the Armed Services Committee. She's a retired Army helicopter pilot who was wounded when her helicopter was shot down. She's someone I've known from her early days in Congress and her time working in the V.A., and she would be a fascinating choice. But one thing is for sure, whoever Biden picks is going to make news. So strap in. It's going to get very interesting this summer. Especially this summer. Especially when times are hot, you need to look for the helpers. That's a theme of this show, especially now. And this is the greatest time we've ever seen in our lives for helpers and for heroes. A few weeks ago, CNN's Brooke Baldwin joined us on this show. And if you haven't heard it, go check it out. But she talked to an amazing and inspiring hero that I want to share with you, 93-year-old Opal Lee. She talked about her efforts to turn Juneteenth into a federal holiday. If you've never heard her before, ladies and gentlemen, meet Miss Opal Lee, 93 years old.
10: Opal Lee joins me today. Miss Lee, I admire you. Uh, I am honored to speak to you. Welcome,
5: Thank you. And let me clarify something. I walked uh from Fort Worth to Washington DC but not 1400 miles. I started that way and got past Dallas, Texas and one or two other places before my team decided that I would only go to the cities or towns that had Juneteenth celebrations and where I was invited. So I was invited to over 20 cities and I got to Washington on January the 10th, 2017. We had asked President Obama to walk with us from the Frederick Douglass house to the Capitol, but he was in Chicago. So I didn't get what I wanted. But I haven't given up. And today was a tremendous day for us.
10: Yeah, yes, ma'am. And and I, I appreciate the clarification. And uh, I had a feeling you didn't walk every single step of the way. But listen, um, I appreciate that you have been fighting the good fight. And I'm, I'm curious, Miss Lee, just what it would mean for you to have Juneteenth become a federal holiday. And do you think these announcements from members of Congress on both sides mean that you are getting
5: close? I do believe we're getting closer. I am, I'm just elated. I keep telling people when it happens, I'm gonna do a holy dance. I I am so grateful for the numbers of people who have joined in making it a holiday. I'm, I'm wanting people to continue to go to our website, us.com and sign the petition we need a million signatures to give to congress to let them know it's just not one little old lady in tennis shoes walking a country across the country and that this our group the national juneteenth observance foundation that's working just as hard we want the millions of people to let Congress know that they agree that Juneteenth should be a national holiday. Uh, Miss Lee, if, if I
10: may, I think this, uh, to quote you, little old lady in tennis shoes, is, uh, has managed to do quite a lot for this country and for Juneteenth. And my final question really is, you are 93 years young. You remember when you were not allowed to vote in this country because of the color of your skin. And look at where we are now all these marches on Juneteenth in 2020. I'm curious, what do you make of the last few weeks in America and and how much hope do you have for real change?
5: Uh, I've got a lot of hope. Uh, It's just, it's, it's, I don't know how to put it, that we go through these cycles, that we have to lose somebody's life before we get around to protesting. And if I was young enough, I'd be out there protesting with them. Then we do something to placate the community. And before you know it again, this has happened again. And it's happened too many times. And we simply need to be able to alleviate these problems and They are so pronounced. Juneteenth is trying to address the hopelessness, the homelessness, the education system that needs to be addressed, the housing situation, job disparity. Uh, Juneteenth is just not a festival. These are things that we take to heart and want people to know, we can solve these problems if we just do it together. And I'm advocating, and I hear some other companies too, that we have Juneteenth from the 19th to the 4th of July. You know, slaves weren't free on the 4th of July, but if we could just come together and work our problems out. Amen to that.
0: She's a helper. She's a hero. She's a fighter. And if it we're up to me, Opal Lee would be on Joe Biden's shortlist, too, to be a candidate for VP. But she represents the best of the fighting spirit of this country. And she represents our past, our present, and our future. And we'll need her and the other fighters and helpers now more than ever. People don't normally immediately think of soldiers as helpers especially infantry soldiers, grunts, but they are. And Charlotte Clymer is a fighter. And Charlotte Clymer is an infantry soldier. The infantry's nickname is the Queen of Battle, and the motto is, follow me. Charlotte Clymer is a queen of battle, and every day she is leading by example and inspiring people to follow her. The Infantryman's Creed is about the spirit of the infantry, and about why the infantry is different. Why the infantry is special. Why the infantry sucks. And here's how it goes. I am the infantry. I am my country's strength in war. Her deterrent in peace. I am the heart of the fight. Wherever, whenever, I carry America's faith and honor against her enemies. I am the queen of battle. I am what my country expects me to be. The best trained soldier in the world. In the race for victory, I am swift, determined, and courageous. Armed with a fierce will to win, never will I fail in my country's trust. Always I fight on, through the foe, to the objective, to the triumph over all, if necessary, I will fight to my death. By my steadfast courage, I have won more than 200 years of freedom. I yield not to weakness, to hunger, to cowardice, to fatigue, to superior odds. For I am mentally tough physically strong, and morally straight. I forsake not my country, my mission, my comrades, my sacred duty. I am relentless. I am always there, now and forever. I am the infantry. Follow me. The infantry is the oldest branch in the Army. Ten companies of riflemen were authorized by the Continental Congressional Resolve on June 14, 1775. And the oldest regular Army Infantry Regiment, the 3rd Infantry, was constituted on June 3rd, 1784, as the 1st American Regiment. It's the same regiment that Charlotte Clymer served in. She is the infantry. Despite fatigue, despite superior odds, she is mentally tough, physically strong, and morally straight. She is relentless, and she is always there now and forever. She is the infantry, and she's someone you should follow. Angry Americans continues our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the front lines of our three storms, the virus, the protests, the election. And this time, we have another important, inspiring, iconic guest that is on the front lines daily, pushing ideas on all three. A guest that shaped America's past, is shaping our present, and will surely shape our future. Ah! Charlotte is infantry through and through. And so is this conversation. It's gritty. It's real. It's hard hitting. It's critical. It's a Kevlar helmet of integrity. It's a steady compass of information. It's a sky blue cord of inspiration. And it's an accurate rifle of impact. Welcome to an exploration of pain. Welcome to an exploration of service. Welcome to a discussion about the future of the military, activism, Politics, dialogue, and equality. Welcome to a conversation about how being comfortable with being uncomfortable can actually be a superpower. Welcome to a conversation about how to fight. And welcome to a conversation about pride. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 65. Angry Americans around the country and around the globe. Happy Pride. Happy Summer. Welcome to a very important, inspiring conversation with someone I am delighted to know and very happy to have a conversation with, especially right now. Um, she is a master of politics, of culture, of so many things that I'm excited to get into. Um, but is a true inspiration, an activist, a fighter, a patriot, the great and powerful Charlotte Climber. How are you, my friend? Hey, Paul, how you doing? I am, I am great. I am excited to be talking to you. Um,
7: uh, where are you and, and, and how are you? Okay, well, I am in Washington, D.C., uh, southeast Washington, D.C., near RFK Stadium. And uh, I am not doing too bad. You know, this crisis has kind of dragged on for several months, and D.C.'s slowly climbing its way out of the hole. But, you know, we're doing okay here. And
0: because it's angry Americans, we we are all dealing with tough times in different ways. And my mother's been on me about the drinking on the show, so I'm going to try to shift maybe <laughs> repeat guests toward fitness or something else. But um, I, I want you to please share with us, Charlotte, what is your favorite cocktail or adult beverage of choice and why?
7: I'm going to give you two. Um, my my favorite, like my all-time favorite drink, is the French 75. It is the tastiest shit. I love it. Like I will order it at any bar. But you can't always get the French seventy-five. Uh, so in DC, when I'm here, I, de- I drink DC Brow, which is uh, you know our our lo- one of our local distilleries, and I I love I love good beer. So I love it.
0: You will you will be pleased to know that I have tried to concoct a French seventy-five.
6: Oh, I love it! Look at that. I,
0: I didn't know what it was until I asked you in advance, and you sent me a note. And I don't have a champagne glass, but you, can you please share with with our audience what's in it? Cause I think it's delightful. It's an amazing summer drink. It's so tasty and I'm completely hooked. Okay. I'll be real with you. I forgot what's in it. I forgot all the ingredients. Write so it down, write it down for me. It's gin, simple syrup, lemon juice. Um, what else? Uh, now I have to look it up, but it, the interestingly, because we're both army vets, I, I read that it was concocted in a New York bar in Paris and named after a French 75 millimeter field gun because it packs, no. it packs such a punch. Is that, what, are you serious? Wow. That's what, that's what the internet's told me. I don't know if it's true or not, but. We just can't get away from the army. That's what this
7: is. Right? <laughs> so how did you How did you first get introduced to that drink? Do you remember? Yes, it was It was last summer. <clears throat> I was at a friend's place she was like, hey, have you ever had a Prince 75? And I'm like, no, what the hell is that? She's like, I'm, gonna, I'm about to blow your mind. She mixes a drink for me. And I drink, it was just the tastiest goddamn thing I've had in quite a while. Cause I usually stick to beer. I stick to beer. I'll do wine and I'll do just straight vodka. Like those, those are my three go-tos, but God, I mean, gee, it's so damn good. And here's the great thing about it. You could guzzle these down like one after the other without thinking. And it it will, it'll take a minute, but it'll hit you like a, like a brick. So I
0: I I looked at it. It's one ounce gin, half ounce, fresh lemon juice. A half ounce simple syrup, three ounces of champagne or other sparkling wine, and garnish with a lemon twist. And it's- I like how
7: with the twist, you just like kind of plunked your little slice. Of- yeah, this is a really, <laughs> this is a really <laughs> shitty twist. That's an army twist is what that is. This is the kind of twist you do when you have
0: a, uh, an 18-month-old crawling on your leg and you hope <laughs> you can grab the knife, and it's your last lemon. That's a Father's Day <laughs> a twist of, is what that is. It's a little bit of an old lemon, I won't lie to you, but, but <laughs> cheers to you, Charlotte. I'm sorry cheers. to do this in person, but cheers. It's an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. So, so much I want to get into with you. Yeah. Um, Because you've really, I think, burst onto the political scene in the last couple of years. We met, I think, only for the first time at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, right?
7: That's right. Yeah. Uh, about a year ago, in fact.
0: So I, I just read that that has been postponed or canceled. Um, for for those of us who've been there, it's it's maybe for me, Charlotte, one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life. But can you share your thoughts? I don't know if that was the first time if you've been or you've been before, but your thoughts on someone who had, who had burst onto the political scene and then you're at the White House Correspondence Dinner. What was that like for you?
7: So I've been a political nerd since I was a kid. Um, like even in trailer parks in Central Texas, I would watch C-SPAN and read political biographies. I, l- I just love that shit. I always have. And the White House Correspondence Dinner... Every year, the White House Correspondents' Association, which is the White House press corps and you know, the folks who cover like the White House and the office of the presidency, they'll get together. They'll do this massive dinner for everyone who's anyone uh, in, in political circles, and a bunch of Hollywood celebrities come. And you know, usually the president will give a speech uh and then they'll have like an entertainer for the year and it's usually like some kind of stand up comedian uh, you know they like john stewart has done it mm-hmm. stephen colbert did a really famous one in 2006 when he right. completely eviscerated bush at the dinner um and so you know for ours though uh donald trump has never come to one of these because he doesn't want to be made fun of because it's kind of a semi roast right. like people will come just hear jokes about whoever's president at the time it's all in good fun it's supposed to be this like kind of lighthearted thing and Donald Trump is so skin, thin-skinned that he can't do it. And so, for ours, it was uh, the historian. Um, oh, hell, who, who was the I forgot. I forgot who he was. But oh, he, my he God. Up- oh, Ron Chernow. Ron, Ron Chernow. Chernow. Thank you. Yeah, a writer of Hamilton. Yep. And he, I got to tell you, I thought it was going to be a boring thing. Like, he's a great writer, don't get me wrong. But he gave an amazing damn speech. Yeah. That was incredible. He, he threw a ton of shade in there. People were laughing during this, you know, what was supposed to be a serious speech because he was great at it. Um, but you know, the, there's surrealness though that you spoke of, you're walking around into like these rooms, um, where like the, cause it's the main ballroom with the dinner, but right. before the dinner, it's a bunch of like rooms outside of the ballroom. And there's all of these political celebrities, like people you see in the news all the time. So I, like I passed by Sean Spicer at one point, like, I, you know, I would never assault someone, but I kind of wanted to punch him. You know, I just kept walking. Um, you know, I saw a bunch of, uh uh, you know, talking heads on MSNBC. I ran right into Joanne Reed, I think. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of just really fantastic people. Every member of Congress you can think of usually goes, especially if they're part of that president's party. Um, so yeah, it's a great time. What do you think of it?
0: It is. It is. It is. I think among the most surreal experiences. It, it's the weirdest event I've ever been to because it's such an assemblance of the weirdest group of people. Like I was sitting at the NBC table. Um, and then you see people like Andrea Mitchell, and then I saw Governor Pritzer, the governor of, 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 of Chicago, then the fat Jew, you know, the guy, the comedian, the, the online comedian, oh, the fat yeah, Jew, yeah, yeah. right. And it's just such a collision of people in one room, you know, a combination of people that you admire or you've grown up watching and a group of people you want to punch in the face. Right. So it feels like, it feels like they call it nerd prom, but it, but it's like, That's right. it's, it's even more than that. I mean, my favorite part of it was I've gone a couple times and mostly because Rachel Maddow doesn't like to go and she's been a friend and a supporter for many years and as an activist she understood that I could use her ticket and it was beneficial for me to be there to represent veterans to talk to people to build relate. and often I was the only veteran in the room which you can relate to oh, um, and so at one point I, I wear a tuxedo and I'm a big bald white guy uh, so oftentimes when I do that people think I'm secret service <laughs> and And I had a lapel pin on and at one point I came down the stairs into the grand ballroom and there was a potted plant at the bottom of the stairs and a guy saw me and kind of hid behind the potted plant. And I was walking down slowly trying to figure out and he he sticks his head up and it's Zach Galifianakis and and Zach Galifianakis had a drink and I guess he thought you weren't supposed to bring drinks into the main room. He thought I was security so he tried to hide his drink before I could see him. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, man, I'm a big fan. I'm not security. Drink all you want, dude. You're Alpha <laughs> He was like, "Oh, okay, cool, no problem, right?" And then I go in and I see like Marcus Limonis from The Prophet and like the most random assemblance of people, but. Yeah, you know, that was my great Zach Alfanaka story. And and you should
7: have asked him for a hit. Like, do you have any do you have any weed on you, man, or something like I, that? It <laughs> would have made it more more bearable, but but it is
0: a surreal this whole political time is, is such a surreal experience. And you've been a master of integrating your social media presence, uh, you know, interacting with candidates, you know, right, ra- raising stories up your own and, and empowering others. But you grew up in Texas, right? You talked about your your humble beginnings. And I want to ask you, Charlotte, the question that we ask of of everyone. When you were growing up in Texas, Charlotte Clymer, what was your first car?
7: Oh, first car. Okay. So my junior year of high school, uh, my father, uh, in one of probably the few purely generous acts he ever did for me, bought me a 1974 F100 pickup. Uh, for 500 bucks, and then I had to pay it off over the next couple months. Uh, but I tell you what, I love that goddamn truck. I loved it so much. The clutch was terrible. It had to be replaced twice. One time at an intersection, I had to get out of the car, or I, I had to get out of the cab and sneak underneath to like readjust the clutch manually so I could get back in and drive off. But I, I loved it. It was, it was mine, and it, it had this funky, weird mildew smell that grew on me and i could i just whenever i think of that smell i just ha- i'm so happy <laughs> i re- i really am and charlotte what year was it do you remember and what color was it 1973 ford f100 yellow like mustard yeah. yellow yeah mustard yellow yeah yeah that makes an impression ugliest fucking truck i mean just you know weird brown shitty upholstery inside i loved it I mean, that was my truck. It was my baby. Uh, and then when I joined the army, I, you know, I, I think my my father sold it off or something like that. But God, I loved it. Uh, so did it have a name? Uh, I never gave it a name. No. It feels like a vehicle that needs a name, right? Like if you
0: come back in another life and you go through that journey, I feel like you got to come up with a name for that truck, right?
7: I want to get I want to get one like it again. Like that's 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 one of my that's one of my goals when I move when I move out into you know maybe when I move back to Texas, like I'll. I'll find a truck just like that and buy it again.
0: So you talked about going from Texas into the Army and then eventually West Point, right? Yeah. Um, you've been a great advocate for many communities and, and, and groups of people, but to include veterans. And you've been a real, I think, powerful and important voice for our veterans community. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why did you join the Army? What did you do in the Army? And, you know, you've told this story many times, but but especially for for a community that is made up of many veterans and, and folks who care about veterans' issues and the military and national defense. You know, what do you want folks to know about that, that experience that, that you had?
7: I feel like the military has become a partisan institution in a way that I really don't like. Um, you know, it's, it's this thing where I even see a lot of far left, like folks on the very far left, who look at the military as an institution or a tool of evil. Or, or imperialism is what I hear said. And what I want to tell them is like, you know, some of the best and brightest in our country join the military for very good reasons. The military does incredible work that, you know, is almost never reported on as much as it should be anyway. And the worst parts of how politicians exploit our service is the image that is presented to the world about us. So they never see like, you know, the community projects we do. They never see the... Um, the, the incredible relationships that are formed, you know, taking, taking especially folks from, you know, poor backgrounds, giving them a baseline education, giving them money for college when they get out. Like there's so many things about the military I love. But unfortunately, what it's defined as is um, this exploited tool of corrupt politicians. And that's, mm. that's really unfortunate.
2: Mm.
7: I, I joined the Army not too long after I turned 19. Uh, I was you know this was two thousand and five. I was against the Iraq war for like from day one i just I knew it was a bad idea, like even then, being like a smart ass you know sixteen year old I knew it was a bad idea um, but to me, it really hit home uh the summer after high school i came I came back uh after like one or two you know weeks at this job I was working, and I saw on the news that the death toll in Iraq had hit a thousand. And something about that really made me feel guilty Mm. and not because I necessarily wanted to be part of this war effort, (laughs) but I felt like there were 19-year-olds like me serving in Iraq and Afghanistan and here I was at home doing nothing, Mm. you know, except working this minimum wage job and, you know, trying to pay for community college. And I wanted to be part of something bigger than myself and I wanted to share in the sacrifices of my generation because I was a self-righteous little shit. Uh, And so I went to a recruiter the next day and we started talking through it. I did the (coughs) ASVAB, I was at the recruiter station and I remember uh, the recruiter being like, okay, well you got a really high test score so you can do anything you want. I'm like, I wanna do infantry. He's like, okay, let's slow down, let's slow down, let's back (laughs) up a little bit. It's like, you can do anything you want. You can do intelligence. You can be a translator. You can, uh, you know, you can learn comms if you want to like whatever you want. I'm like, no, I want to go infantry. That's who I am. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. Cause I have this very innate sense. Like if I wasn't doing the shittiest work, then it wasn't honorable. Mm. I didn't have any mentors in my life at that time. Um, because if if, if I had a mentor at the time, they would have sat me down and been like, all service is good service and you don't have to go into the military to be, you know, a public service uh, or, or be of, of service to your country. Um, but I didn't. And so, you know, my solution to these these fillings was to serve in the military. And I don't regret it, because uh, I learned a lot of uh, great stuff. But I, I enlisted, went to Fort Benning, uh, which was, oh, God, just a shitty three and a half months, let me tell you. That, you know, I, I knew it was going to be hard. <clears throat> like, I didn't, I didn't have any illusions about it being difficult. I didn't know it was going to be exasperating and that that's a good way to put it. Like Mm -hmm. infantry training, one station unit training at Fort Benning on Sand Hill is just exasperating. Like you are taught from moment one that you can't do it right. Like there, there's no doing it right. You, because the whole point is to stress you the fuck out and break you down and then build you back up. Now for a straight A student like me, Um, I'm like, you know, here are the standards. Then I meet the standards. Then I get my gold star. Like that's how it's supposed to work. So I'm doing everything like I'm supposed to do. And this drill sergeant, and you know, I don't know why to this day, but he, he specifically hated me. Like he, and it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like an empowering thing where he's pushing me to be a better soldier or whatever. No, he really did hate me. And I don't know why, but uh he just made my life a living hell for the entire three and a half months. It was a total shit. But the other two drill sergeants, I wanted to be just like them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be everything they were. I mean, they they had their shit together. Um, they were really great about teaching all of us ethics, like, you know, here's why we go to war, here's how you treat enemy combatants, here's how you treat civilians, um, you know, here's why we do what we do. And this is what's proper to be Uh, A professional of arms, Mm -hmm. and you know, I look back on that experience as very formative because it taught me that I could go way beyond my own limits, way beyond what I perceived as my own limits, and it uh, kind of instilled in me this drive to, I don't know, just be a better person in every way. And I, you know, I've I've I fucked up, I've had failures, um, as everyone does, but if I hadn't joined the army when I did. I don't think I would still have this sense of 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 drive and ambition but also wanting to do the right thing and be a good person at the same time.
0: That's that that's really really insightful and I think you know as an infantry guy myself the thing I always remembered about the infantry is that it taught me how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. It taught me how to, no matter what you do, it's going to be wrong, right? And those, especially in those training, and, and that's by design to make you on some level suffer and, <laughs> and get used to suffering to be able to embrace the suck, right? We all say it right. in the exactly. infantry, you, you, you embrace the suck, you bond in the suck, it brings you together, it makes you tougher, but it really more than anything else in my experience taught me how to, how to be comfortable with discomfort. And that, that did serve me well later in life in ways I couldn't imagine in some of the hardest times of my life. And so you, you know, you're in basic training in, in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 15 years later, you wrote a piece for USA Today about a different kind of struggle, about what it's like to be a trans woman in America and and traveling. And, and I, I want to go there because um, when I read that piece, it struck me because you've been such a powerful advocate for others, but also because you've been so candid about your own struggles and your own pain and your own um, sense of vulnerability. And so, you know, as a former infantry soldier, you're moving in, in, in America in 2020. And I'm wondering, you know, can can you share the, the highlights of that piece for folks who haven't read it and, yeah. and, and that part of your experience and maybe how the two are even interconnected on, on some
7: level? That's a, that's a great connection. Um, and I wanted to say real quick, you you know, you, you got it exactly right. Being a part of the inventory is about getting used to being uncomfortable and complaining all the time and just, just feeling shitty and trying to get, you know, trying to be comfortable with being shitty. The other day I explained to a friend what the phrase means, if it ain't raining, we ain't training. (laughs) because <laughs> I, I said that and I, I wasn't thinking because it's a civilian who doesn't know anything about the military. And she's like, what the hell does that mean? I'm like, Oh, Oh, oh let me back out. And so I had to explain to her, like the, the whole point of training is to put you into the most uncomfortable situations possible and make you sweat so that you don't bleed in war. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's raining while you're training, especially in the woods or outdoors or whatever, and you have to sleep in that shit and it stresses you out and it's just gross and uh, it makes, you know, doing combat missions harder, it, it, it makes your training better because it, it's it's just one more obstacle you have to overcome. So that when you do, you know, get over, you know, downrange, wherever you're going, and you get into situations that are just enormously stressful and, and, and you know, things that you wouldn't have thought to prepare for, at least at least you knew that you'd already gotten through some hard training already. So if it ain't raining, we ain't training, right? Mm. I think the way that this relates to so much of what folks in marginalized communities go through, like, as as you pointed out, is that we have a difficulty setting that's just a little higher than most people. And, you know, so um, if you are a woman, it's a little higher than men. If you are transgender, it's a little higher than cisgender people. If you are a person of color, it's higher than, Uh, white people, if you're a religious minority, and on and on and on. And for trans women, and for trans people in general, we have to really watch our backs everywhere we go. Uh, Because we are not only often conspicuous, um, but we find that people will make an issue out of us being in the same space that they are. Mm -hmm. And in the USA Today piece, what I wrote about essentially where all the things, well, not even all the things, like really just a selection of things that I have to consider when I'm out in public. So for example, if I'm traveling somewhere, like, you know, I live in DC, if I'm going to like, I don't know, Missouri, and I'm gonna gonna have an airport layover, I look up the local uh, non-discrimination laws in the city that I'm going to in Missouri, for the state of Missouri, I look it up for the airport layover, let's say it's in like Ohio or something, I'll look up you know, what what I what Ohio is saying about transgender uh, identities so that I can make sure that whenever I'm in public in that airport layover or, um, you know, in that town in Missouri, I'll, I'll know what I'm entitled to in terms of my legal rights. Uh, because in most states in the country, there are a lack of non-discrimination protections for housing, for public accommodations, for credit, for jury service, for adoption, uh, you know, just really across the board for LGBTQ people, but specifically trans people. Like, I could, I, you know, I could theoretically get arrested for using the women's restroom in, um, you know, say a uh, restroom in a state that doesn't have those protections, um, or I could get assaulted, which is, which, which is even scarier. Like, getting arrested is one thing, being assaulted, and then you know, possibly getting arrested or having the, you know, law enforcement not care about it. It's a whole other level of difficulty. And so, you know, there are things that you do, like when I am when I am outside of DC or a major metropolitan area, I make sure that I watch how much I'm eating or drinking when I'm in public. So if my friends and I go on a road trip, I am, you know, we stop at a restaurant, I'm going to make sure that I'm very careful about how much I drink, very careful about how much I eat, um, so that I don't have to put myself in a situation where I am you know, in danger or, you know, unintentionally antagonizing some transphobic person. Um, If if I'm here in DC and I go to use the restroom, there might be a long line. I walk the other way. Uh, I just don't go to the restroom. I'll just wait. Because if you stand in line and there's a tourist from a conservative part of the country, they might take my picture and then put it on Twitter and then it becomes a whole meme for some very hateful people. Um, There might be... Uh, you know, some guy who gets pissed at seeing a trans woman in line and comes over and starts to start, uh, tries to start trouble. I mean, this, this kind of happens to trans people all the time and we don't talk about it as often because it's, because if we did talk about it, it's all we'd ever talk about. Mm. You know, we get discriminated against all the time. Y'all just don't know about it. Cis people in general, because we don't want to be a burden. (laughs) Mm. We just want to live our lives. And so that's what the USA Today piece was about, because J.K. Rowling came out and said, well, you know, trans women and, you know, traditionally women's spaces makes us feel uncomfortable. And and she does not reflect the views of most of the vast majority of cis women, by the way, cis women being women who are not trans. And, uh, you know, our point is, is that we're on the same side here, because it's not trans women who are causing problems. It's abusive men who are not really being men, but, you know, you know, cowards, essentially, uh, and being violent, and discriminatory toward people uh, who make them feel uncomfortable, essentially. And so that's what I was trying to say with the USA Today piece. It was
0: so powerful, Charlotte, because you, you really brought people into into your view, your view, what it was like to operate in in, you know, to stretch the combat terms, right? Like you're living in a battlefield every day, Yes. And, and some battlefields are more complicated or intense than others. You know, sometimes it's enemy lines. Sometimes it's friendly, occupied territory, right? But, but to understand um, how precarious it is for you to do everything, to leave your house, to have to worry about whether you drink too much and that increases your vulnerability, to, you know, having to navigate other people's hate, right, on, on a bathroom line. It, it was very, very powerful, very important, I think, I think very courageous, um, and you've continued to be out there, and 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 you've also you throw punches, right? You throw a lot of punches, especially online. You know this 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 month, especially in this next couple of weeks. I've really wanted to delve into having conversations with fighters, people who are in the arena, right? We had Ron Perlman on. We have you on this week. We're going to have others, but you're in the arena. I mean, every day you're a woman in the arena. Whether it was you know you work at HRC, putting out pieces, uh, going to events, and especially on Twitter. You're mixing it up like you're out there. Uh, and I think consistently adding light to the heat, right? You are fighting, but you're fighting with information. You're fighting with your story and carrying forward the story of others. So I really want to ask you, Charlotte, in this moment where um, Black Lives Matter has has now reached the tipping point and change is, is happening at a rapid rate. It's it's uh, it's it's intersecting with pride. Right and and now this 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 historic Supreme Court ruling, which is you know a step forward on, on what needs to be many more steps to true equality in the U.S. But can can you break down um, for us what you think is happening right now in this moment? And and as a leader for uh, for the trans community, for the LGBTQ community, for the veterans community, for so many other communities, you're in a powerful position, I think, to be almost a translator um, mm-hmm. across different movements. So. Um, what, what what do you think about this moment, and, and 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 how do you see the landscape?
7: I think for so long, uh, people in marginalized communities have been trying to communicate that we face ops we face obstacles that go unrecognized by larger society. You know, whether it be black people who uh, are not treated with dignity and respect by law enforcement, whether it be LGBTQ people who are not treated with dignity and respect by Ah, uh, the powers that be, lawmakers, whether it's disabled folks, women, whether it's veterans who continue, continue to get denied proper health care by a VA that continues to be broken and uh, uh, critically negligent. Um, all these marginalized communities are continuing to go unheard. And what we're hearing right now are those people being heard. Mm. You know, we are hearing desperation being sounded out loud at a government that seems completely fine with leaving people behind that don't look like them, that don't serve in the military, that aren't uh, of a different race, that uh, are not LGBTQ or women or you know, folks who are disabled or you know, lack health care or work minimum wage jobs. You know, all of these folks who so critically need uh, a government that stands up for them, uh, they're tired of having a government that instead shouts them down and, and, and tells them to just be quiet and take it. Mm. And I think we're not taking it anymore, we're not. Mm. You know, what I really wanna press forward to, to folks who are listening is, I, I know that there are so many people who don't, un, who don't quite understand trans issues, not from, not from even like uh, an ideology, but for just conceptually, like maybe they just don't, they don't get it yet. And we're not going after you. We're not trying to make your life harder, I promise. You are not the problem. I I strongly believe in a carrot and stick approach. When when a person approaches me in good faith, when they accidentally misgender me, when they don't quite know the terminology or they're just not up with the times, that's okay, let's talk about it. Let's work it out real quick and move on. That's fine. It's when people are intentionally cruel and dismissive and, and I think abusive and oppressive toward others, that's when I get pissed and break out a stick.
4: Mm.
7: Because if you go after people who are marginalized, whether they be LGBTQ folks, uh, veterans, people of color, uh, et cetera, that's when I get into the game. That's when I, I'm going to punch your fucking lights out. You know, I mean, that's, that's where that goes, because so many of these people don't have anyone fighting for them. (laughs) They have, they can see people fighting for them in the news, but in their own smaller communities, uh, especially in the South, especially in the heartland, heartland, they feel alone. They feel like no one is sticking up for them. And so that's where our fight needs to be right now. And the last thing on my mind is whether or, whether or not some random uh, white person is uncomfortable with the phrasing Black Lives Matter. Uh, that shouldn't that shouldn't. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't. I don't. People are dying. We need to care about that.
0: Mm. Um, Charlotte, can you talk about the Supreme Court decision um, and, and, and break it down in historical context, in, in technical context? Um, you know, I don't think I, I didn't expect to go into this month month uh, having my source of hope for the future be the conservative Supreme Court on an equality issue right? I, I, it was not what I was expecting, right? A 6-3 decision, I think, in the yes. end, right? Uh, on, uh, you know, after a series of, of almost annually, um, and and the timing almost seems to work out. It's like right before Pride for the last I don't know, four or five years in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially as someone who lives in New York, you know, the the... the, the the founding place of pride, right, where Stonewall was. Last year, I think it was for this show, we went outside of Stonewall and interviewed people to ask them what they thought about Trump's trans ban, right? So um, year after year, these, these, these changes are happening and these fights are happening. They're like battles in the larger war toward true equality for everyone in America, but especially for LGBTQ people. Please break down, Charlotte, this Supreme Court decision.
7: Yes. Okay. So, the Supreme Court was trying to answer this question: whether the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects people on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation under the sex uh, under the classification, excuse me, classification of sex as a class. Um, because sex, uh, you know, when it was when the Civil Rights Act was passed, really just included. It, it was speaking to women essentially. It was speaking to all people, but really was trying to protect women from discrimination. And, you know, for the last two decades, federal courts, other than the Supreme Court, all the lower courts, have essentially said that gender identity and sexual orientation are covered under the Civil Rights Act. Now, those decisions have never been appealed up to the Supreme Court before, uh, not for uh, uh, not for an outstanding decision, not for a finality. Uh, and so what the Supreme Court said in the 6-3 decision is that in the area of employment law, em- uh, excuse me, employment discrimination specifically, it is illegal to, you know, discriminate against someone because they are LGBTQ. Now, this doesn't cover anything else right. at all. This only applies to employment discrimination. So it doesn't apply to public accommodations. It doesn't apply to housing. It doesn't apply to credit. It doesn't apply to jury service. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply to adoption or access to health care. You know, There are all these areas of public life that are so essential to how we live and how our loved ones live. Those are not covered by this decision. It's only whether or not someone can be discriminated against in the area of employment. Now, um, this is an interesting decision because as you said, at 6-3. Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by Trump, wrote the opinion, the majority opinion, and Chief Justice John Roberts joined into it. And people were very surprised by this. And I mean, you know, we were surprised too, quite frankly. I mean, we, had, you know, we thought at best, at best, a very slim majority might do like this thing where they're like, you know, sexual orientation is covered, but gender identity is not, or, or the reverse, you know. Um, the thing is, though, is that Neil Gorsuch has kind of made his legal philosophy established on textualism. And it's, the, it's this judicial philosophy where you take the text of legislation at face value. So you don't look at the original intent of the lawmakers. You're not trying to figure out who the co-sponsor of this bill, uh, what, what you know he or she thought would be appropriate for uh, uh, the intent of the law. You're literally looking at the language itself and what it explicitly does. Um, and so all these federal courts up to this point had gone off that textualism and said, well, yeah, I, you know, if, if this this is based on sex, um, you know, uh, who you love is based on sex. Uh, if you are getting a gender reassignment or you are uh, identifying with an alternative gender identity, then that is also based on sex. So, of course, it's covered under sex. And No Gorsuch, being a proud textualist, had to say, "You're right. You're right. You got me. You're right." If he had gone against this, he would he would have looked like a like an enormous schmuck essentially. He would have. Yeah. Now I'll tell you this though. I, I'm surprised by John Roberts. Yeah. I'm very surprised he wouldn't. Like, he, he is a, he is a, he is a textualist, so to speak. Um, but he's not a super strong textualist either. Right. So uh, I, I was very surprised by it and, you know, not to get, not to get super into game theory because I find game theory annoying in general, but, I have to wonder if he's doing like this thing where he concedes LGBTQ rights and he concedes DACA, which was the other big decision recently. Right. DACA was upheld right. in exchange for essentially overturning Roe v. Wade.
10: Mm-hmm.
7: Like that's the big fear right now. Mm-hmm. So we're very happy. You know, we're thrilled that LGBTQ employment uh, is protected and that DACA was upheld. And, you know, maybe we'll get a few other great decisions, especially with Trump's tax returns but we're really worried about choice. Mm-hmm. And I wanna be clear to people, the the bodily autonomy of people in this country, and not just women, but everyone, everyone, everyone who should have the right to make decisions over their own body, that is under attack by this administration, by the Republican Party, and by activist judges who care far more about their interpretation of their religious beliefs than people's individual liberty. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to make clear to the country as a whole that that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for breaking that down um, with, with, with such great uh, dynamism. And uh, um, it, was, it was a moment of hope, right? And, and trying to read between the lines about what it meant and where this could go and if it's a trend or if it's a moment, right? Um, and, and it was you know, surprising, I think, for most folks. Um, it, it, it brought a little bit of a, of a shot in the arm. I think when, it, when, when folks needed it after all these months of, of turbulence and pain. Um, but there's still, you know, what, what I love about your work, Charlotte is, um, you know, you obviously are involved in the democratic side of politics, but a lot of what you talk about and the way you explain things is post-partisan, right. And a lot of our, uh, audience is independent. They don't have a political home or they're not happy with the Republican or democratic party. And, and I think what, what you've been able to break down is how this is about principled American values and about how it's about the text at times, right? Or about um, the, the pillars of our, of our, of our society. Um, and you always have a righteous anger, right? In the same way uh, George Washington did or Martin Luther King did or Harvey Milk did. So uh, Charlotte Clymer, what makes you angry?
7: It makes me angry, when vulnerable people are attacked, when vulnerable people don't have an equal stake in the public square. And I'm not just talking about race, gender, and sexuality. I'm not just talking about LGBTQ people and people of color and women. I'm talking about the veteran who goes back home and can't get proper medical care from his local VA center because they're you know, under just, just a very negligent and corrupt administration. Uh, who can't seem to get their shit together to make sure this guy gets his medication. Um, I get angry at the fact that there are, you know, folks who have worked in coal mines in West Virginia for decades. Um, And, you know, we need to get to a more, you know, responsible use of energy. But we have to find these folks jobs Mm. and, and do it in a way that's ethical, And they're looking at their livelihoods being stripped away and trying to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to put food on the table, um, why they're being painted as the bad guy, simply for just running in the family business to keep their family clothed and fed and housed. That's unacceptable. We are watching folks see their jobs be shipped overseas or replaced by automation or uh, seeing these massive corporations just bankrupt communities by ripping out the, you know, ripping out the corporate strongholds from the towns that they've literally built up with their business. Uh, it pisses me off. That makes me angry when people without power are essentially told that they're dispensable and that they don't matter. Mm. That makes me get up every morning ready to fight.
0: Um, I love that answer because it's an insight into how you fight and into how many different issues you've been able to fight effectively on, which leads me to a question that I have to ask you. You're from Texas. We had uh, Ron Perlman on last week, who last episode who blew up Ted Cruz uh, and Matt Gates. That continues to go on. If folks are listening, they haven't heard that. You got to go back and check it out. But I asked Ron if he would move to Florida and run against Gates, or move to Texas and run against Ted Cruz. But you're from Texas. Would you ever go back and and run for office there or anywhere else?
7: I might do it. I might. Uh, I'll I'll tell you what holds me back. There are a lot of talented people in my generation who are ready to run for office. They just need the platform to do it. Um, I'm the kind of person, I know if I ran for office and I were at a town hall and some fucking clown got up and asked a really fucking clown question, I would treat them like a fucking clown. Um, now a good politician, a good leader is able to respond to clownery by bringing people together, by illuminating, uh, by drawing a larger American narrative and saying, this is where we want to go and we don't want to leave anyone behind. Whereas I, if I heard some question about why are we letting the illegals in, I would say you fucking moron. It's because... They are human beings and our economy depends on them and they're being exploited while your ass is telling, uh, telling everyone we should deport them. I mean, I just, I get so angry that I, I'm kind of better as a driving force outside of the uh, established political system. I will work with organizations and help out people run for campaigns and whatnot, but there are much smarter, much more organized uh, uh, you know, I, I would say much calmer people who are extremely well fitted to public service and advocacy within elected office who are much better for that. And I would rather support them.
0: We finally found something we disagree on. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it, your um, your your ability to fight. Your ability to call bullshit, your ability to be authentic, your ability to call someone a clown when they're a clown is is part of what's refreshing and what we need more people to do in politics because that's real, right? Like if someone walked up to your your house or your family or your friends and acted like a clown, you call them a clown and tell them stop acting like a clown. But in politics, we kind of water it down. And I think it's created this almost acceptance of it and the idea that politicians and our policy have to hear out racism or have to hear out hate or have to hear out just rude shit. And so I, I, I will challenge you on that in, in that. I hope that your authenticity and your willingness to fight um, represents what could be the, the future in politics with respect, of course, but you come armed with facts, you come armed with experience, you come armed with skills um, and, and we need more people like you. The people who don't want to serve, the people who don't want to run for office are the ones we need. And you didn't say no. So 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 Ted Cruz is probably listening now after last episode or at least somebody <laughs> on his staff is so they need to they they might hear your footsteps coming Charlotte right you know what, the Ted Texas Senate would be would be a fun place to watch you
7: watch you run uh, that asshole pisses me off here's what pisses me off the most about Ted Cruz it's not just that he look there are people who strongly believe in the Trump bio, uh, ideology they're all in because they believe that Everything Trump says is true. Ted Cruz knows better. He's actually a very smart person. Everyone who has ever been with him at you know Harvard or, or wherever the hell he went for undergrad and then law school and whatever, they've all said the same thing. This guy is incredibly smart. He's an excellent debater. He knows the issues inside and out but he chooses to do the wrong thing because it's politically expedient and beneficial to his career. And that fucking pisses me off because it's exactly what is wrong with American politics. It's cowardice. And
0: it's also, you know, the antithesis of the Texas spirit. Like I love Texas, you know, folks who who know me know that I go to Texas all the time and I have lots of friends there. And i real, I have a deep love for Texas and for the Texas spirit. And you know, a spineless guy like Ted Cruz is the opposite of what Texas is supposed to stand for. And, And someone with courage and grit and toughness. Uh, you know, a woman like you, Charlotte, is the future of Texas, right? I mean, you know, the, the Ann Richards of the world, Ann Richards didn't take shit, right? And and that's the spirit of Texas, too. So I'm just going to put it out there that I think you'd have a lot of support from, from any party, from all parties, from no parties. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to watch you continue to fight and continue to do good work and continue to raise other people up. I love that you continue to do that. You raise up other voices, you drive money toward causes you care about, and you also bring a fun spirit. So we were talking. Before we started rolling about our favorite Bravo shows, right? But you talk a lot about pop culture. You talk a lot about TV and and celebrity. But I want to ask you a question I ask of everyone else as well, Charlotte. Charlotte Clymer, what makes you happy?
7: God, there is nothing that makes me happier than a Saturday night in a friend's backyard with like eight or ten of your closest friends drinking, talking about anything and everything having to do with the things that we like and just being at peace and comfort with the people you love.
4: Mm. Like,
7: honestly, that that's it for me. If I could do that for the rest of my days on this earth, I would be happy as a clam. If there were no battles to fight, if there was no problems that needed to be solved, I would have some kind of nine to five uh, doing good, honest work and then going and hanging out with friends. Mm. That's happiness to me. And by the way, by the way, yes. my next step is going to be joining the military once this trans ban is over. Really? Yes. You're going to go back uh, in? For getting back into it. Yeah. Yeah. Biden is elected. He overturns a trans ban. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get back in the military. I miss it. Yeah. I, my service active is not over. Active
0: duty, reserve, guard. What do you think? I mean, they might be active duty. duty. The irony would be if you get, you know, you go join the DC National Guard and you get deployed like the DC National Guard did, I think, this week to defend the monuments <laughs> from protesters right which kind of is like is something i've been trying to unpack and i think is really important and explain to people that you know there are some folks who are who are cops and then when they're not cops they're in the national guard and then when they're not in the national guard the cops they're protesting so there are some folks that are spanning all three of these different phases and you would be you know an example of that like someone who sees all, so so you would re-enlist, you go back in the in the army you go back in as an infantry officer right is that that's what totally, I like
7: to do. Yeah, that's what I like to do. And yeah, go, so go, Ted, to, go, to, go to bulk and go to OCS and get it done. Yeah. So Ted Cruz really hopes that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know shit about the army because in the army, there is instant karma. Right. True. We no. both know that when someone yeah. doesn't have their shit together, you get corrected on the spot.
0: Yeah. You know, I've 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 you know, been outspoken about the trans ban. We fought it at IAVA. I think we were the only, if one of the only uh, veteran service organizations to oppose the trans ban, trans ban. And talking about, you know, from a national security standpoint, beyond the ethical and moral standpoint, you know, the national security standpoint of, of ripping trans troops out of combat and the impact that has on the unit and, you know, essentially unpacking a decision that's already been made and, and, and in motion. But can I ask you, because we had him on the show and we had an amazing conversation, now that we've had some time Away from the campaign, Charlotte. What are your thoughts on on the impact of the Judge campaign?
7: Oh, let me tell you something. Pete Judge is one of the bravest people in politics. Um, he and Chasten are his husband, Chasten. They're they're incredible, incredible people, wonderful human beings. I didn't always see eye to eye with Chasten. Excuse me, Chasten. Uh, with uh, you know, Mayor Pete judge on policy, but that's okay. You know, he he. Was a trailblazer in this presidential campaign. He um, he won Iowa, by the way, which not enough people uh, talk about. The first openly gay uh, presidential candidate to win a caucus or primary, which is which is incredible. Right. Um, and it, it pisses me off to this day that Bernie Sanders did not uh, fully recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's the future of the Democratic Party. I really do. In so many ways, uh, he's going to do incredible things in his career. And by the way, you know, people criticize Pete Buttigieg for, you know, his capitalist expense or whatever the hell, which, you know, we can, we can talk policy here and there, but this is a fundamentally decent, good human being who really does want to do right by others. And it pisses me off that we have devolved into this weird Hillary and Bernie divide where the entire progressive movement is either Hillary or Bernie, that is so childish. Mm. No, no, most people are right here in the middle. Mm. They, they, have some, they have some disagreements on policy. They may not always agree with how to go about things. But most folks really want to work together to get progressive goals advanced. We just have different ways of doing it. And Mayor Pete Buttigieg is one of those people. And I, I love him. I think he's fantastic. And he has been an enormously, enormously influential person to so many LGBTQ young people. We want to go into politics and do a lot of good too.
0: Um, I'm with you on that. And I agree as an independent, you know, he's the kind of person that pulls people into the party when so many people are driving him out. Right. And, and having spent time with him, he didn't have to come on my show. You know, it, it was risky for him. We had a, this was back when we had a live audience at the car club. He was, he was earnest. Um, he was straightforward, you know, and, and he was, I, I said it to him at the time, he was a historically important person like the, the impact he will have for generations of kids who look up at the screen and say I can do this I can be like him you know and and, and for veterans as well right like breaking down the idea of like that they the veterans can actually be intellectuals right and then they're not just knuckle-dragging you know security guards right like there, there's more to it it was, it was so important I think even now with the distance, we see how important it is. But let me ask you a quick question. I know we've got to wrap. Do you think you, you, you're, you're a force for, for I think, uh, the future in the Democratic Party? Can the Democrats fucking get their shit together and work together? Because even now, <laughs> that's not happening, right? All the tribes are still out there. And, you know, Biden is by default Jon Snow. Um, I'm not seeing the unity that, that you know, it, it seems to be like it's not happening. What do you, you think is going to happen here, Charlotte? Can this, is what, this is what I tell
7: own? is what i tell people uh the 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 democratic party's greatest strength is that we are a diverse policy of thought and background our greatest weakness is that we are a diverse party of thought and background right so you know we're not lockstep we're not like the you know less than less than nuanced less than savvy less than ethical folks in the republican party because when they get marching orders. They all just come together and get it done. We don't do that because we're thoughtful. We wanna make sure that people aren't left behind. We wanna make sure that uh, you know, factories aren't closed down and that our environment is protected and that, that LGBTQ people have rights and that women aren't um, you know left behind in the uh, gender equality movement. I mean, uh, that we're fighting white supremacy, all of these things we're trying to put together. And that's hard. That's hard when you get all of these folks into a big tent movement. So we're gonna have fights. Uh, We're going to see, you know, uh, Congresswoman Alexander ocasio Cortez criticize Speaker Pelosi and Speaker Pelosi maybe criticize, you know, whoever. That is what a healthy democracy looks like. Disagreement is healthy. It's really healthy. What's unhealthy is when we have our disagreement, we have a result and people say, you know what? Fuck this. I don't want to go along with it because it makes me uncomfortable. Mm. We still got to get things done. And I guarantee you this. If there are Republicans watching this, and especially if, uh, you know, Senator Cruz is watching this, November is coming. And, you know, all of this infighting that you see in the Democratic Party right now, folks are going to come together and kick some ass in November. I guarantee Mm. it. It's going to be an historic win. We're going to kick Trump's ass out. We're going to get back the Senate. We're going to pass the Equality Act. Uh, We're going to, you know, make sure that we, uh, you know, reform the VA. All these things are going to happen but we're going to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations along the way. And people need to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's mm. how good change happens.
0: Mm. You take us beautifully back to where we started, right? Back. We go all <laughs> the way back to, to Fort Benning, right? Where you and I both. <laughs> and, and and now I have to give you an, an honor of, uh, of appreciating, Uh, the the shit that you've had to endure throughout your life and that you will continue to endure as a leader, because for me, a leader is being a leader is in part about sacrifice and about assuming some pain, right? I have to present you with some gifts to help uh, ease that pain. So first off, I can't give these to you in person and we will reconvene at the car club at some point and have lots of French 75s. But first, I'm going to send you some angry Americans. Love it. You're the best kind of angry American made by veterans at Oscar Mike uh, in the USA um another veteran supporting company that's been really great to this pod are our friends at Bravo Sierra uh military inspired wellness products is mm-hmm. antibacterial wipes that you will antibacterial if you go back in the army you're going to be Marie right there you're going to put these in your ruck all the time <laughs> and some deodorant and all kinds of other stuff that's cool um and then Uh, if if people listen to the show, they know that I've become a huge fan of uncle nearest and they are now a great supporter of this podcast. Our friend Jeffrey Wright turned us on to it. They they are about the the fighting spirit and about the future and about telling the the history that needs to be told, which you have done throughout your, your career and your life, Charlotte. So I'm sending you some uncle nearest, uh, 1844. I'm not going to say no to whiskey. It's good. (laughs) shit. It's good. good, (laughs) Real good shit for the backyard. And then, uh, lastly, as is tradition on the show, We have three colors of peeps. We have pink, blue, and yellow. And as we ask all our guests, Charlotte Clymer, which color of peeps would you choose and why?
7: Pink, because it is the best color, hands down. (laughs) (laughs) Why is pink the best color? Pink wakes you the fuck up. When you see pink, you're not going to go to sleep. It's going to get you energized and ready to go. (laughs) <laughs> I love that answer.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, you have brought us energy. You're giving us uh, energy for the future of this country. I am so thankful for your friendship. I am inspired by your example. I'm humbled by your, by your presence and, and for joining me on Angry Americans. Um, I want to thank you for all you do for this country and for so many people out there that don't have a voice. I can't wait to watch you run wherever you, whether, you know, this is one of those things where, like, I really hope you don't go in the Army because the Army, the Army's got, going to get what they need out of you, right? I mean, if you maybe go in the Guard or the Reserves, be like Tulsi Gabbard or whoever else, it's like still running for office and still in in the military. I hope they don't get you 100% because we need you out here for for so many voices and communities. And I wish you a very happy pride. uh, And I just want to thank you for, for all that you do and all that you are.
7: Well, thank you, Paul. I, I really quick, I want to thank you and your team and, you know, just especially all that you do. I mean, you, you are such an incredible bridge between all these different communities and you're really bringing Americans together to get things done. And I appreciate that.
0: When the weather gets hot, when the times get hot, when your body gets hot, Bravo Sierra is what you need. I'm proud to have Bravo Sierra as a sponsor of this show. They are dynamic. They are innovative. If you're a regular listener, you know the deal. They make some awesome grooming and wellness products that you need to check out. Check out their Hair and Body Solid Cleanser. It is really good. It's the anti-soap. I love this stuff. Soap-free, sulfate-free. It has a rich lather. It doesn't dry out your skin or your hair. It's got shea butter, oat flour for soft skin and healthy hair. I don't have a lot of hair, but the hair that I do have loves it fragrance free 100 percent biodegradable it lasts for a long time smells great and you can get it for nine bucks on the website now if you go to Bravo Sierra they've also got something really cool the barber set get the best shave of your life with their foam to cream shaving foam specifically designed for sensitive skin I love this stuff and you can follow on with the after shave face moisturizer soothing and moisturizing and you finish it off with some hair grooming paste for a medium hold matte finish, and texture for all hair types. It's really good stuff. You can find it online at bravosierra.com. And you know the deal. Sometimes you just want to simplify without having to sacrifice performance. Bravo Sierra is highly effective, non-toxic grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyle. They test every product with 1,000 military service members, and they have a simple idea. If products work for the military, they'll work for everybody. And Bravo Sierra always gives 5% back to support programs for active duty service members, vets, and their families, which is always important and especially important now. You'll feel clean. You'll look good. You'll smell great all day long with products that Men's Health calls a game-changing grooming line. So go to bravosierra.com, tell them Angry American sent you. It is hardworking, long-lasting, fragrance-free, doesn't stain your clothes, and almost everything is under 15 bucks. And if you don't love it, you get your money back with no questions asked. So welcome to the Bravo Sierra experience. Check it out. Grooming Essentials, field-tested by members of the military, by me, by Angry Americans nationwide and around the world. Made in the USA and kicking ass just like this show and just like our community. BravoSierra.com. There's plenty of reason to be angry, now, for everyone, everywhere. But there's also a way to turn it, a way to channel it, a way to harness it, a way to turn it into positive impact, to turn that anger into a prideful result. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers,
2: you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers,
0: you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I give you an opportunity to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive impact. Positive impact that shows angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that channels that energy, makes you feel good, and makes a difference. And like this show, and like every infantry soldier, our actions are packed with the four eyes of integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. Ah! Every infantry soldier that goes into combat needs support. And when I asked Charlotte what organization she recommended we support, she gave me one answer. The Transgender Law Center. Check out transgenderlawcenter.org. The Transgender Law Center is the largest national trans-led organization advocating self-determination for all peoples. Grounded in legal expertise and committed to racial justice, they employ a variety of community-driven strategies to keep transgender and gender-nonconforming people alive, thriving, and fighting for liberation. The Transgender Law Center helps provide the ammunition, the support, the armor, and the help that fighters like Charlotte need. Founded in 2002, the Transgender Law Center has grown into the largest trans-specific trans-led organization in the U.S., Their advocacy and precedent-setting litigation victories in areas of employment, prison conditions, education, immigration, and healthcare protect and advance the rights of transgender and gender-nonconforming people across the country. Through their organizing and movement-building programs, TLC assists, informs, and empowers thousands of individual community members a year and builds toward long-term, national, trans-led movement for liberation. Over the last six years, TLC has won precedent-setting victories through cases like that of Ash Whitaker and Shiloh Queen and incubated groundbreaking programs including Black Trans Circles, Positively Trans, Black LGBTQIA and Migrant Project, Truth, and TLC at Song. During this time, TLC has more than doubled in size and made an explicit commitment towards centering racial justice in the trans liberation work. They also have a help desk for anyone who needs it. From employment and housing discrimination to criminalization and violence, transgender people like Charlotte are often forced to engage with a legal system that wasn't built for them. Even something as basic as correcting identity documents to reflect who they are can be a confusing, overwhelming, and isolating process. TLC has a robust collection of resources and publication, and they guide people through the more common legal challenges and questions transgender people encounter. And if they can't find an answer, the legal help desk responds and refers them to other resources through their pro bono network for support. They also have four stars on Charity Navigator. Every fighter in the fight needs someone to have their back. And fighters like Charlotte and countless others depend on TLC to have their back. And you can have their back. Support the fighters and patriots like Charlotte. Go to transgenderlawcenter.org. Do what you can, donate, or just spread the word. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find me on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active.
1: There's a new me coming out, and I.
0: All right, a lot of people to thank for this episode and the last couple of months and the last couple of weeks and some good news to share right off the top. Last episode, we hit number three on the political podcast in America, number 43. We've cracked the charts a couple times, but thanks to many of you, our audience and our impact continue to grow and Angry Americans cracked the top 50 political pods this week ahead of Rudy Giuliani. Hehe. <laughs> And I just learned we hit number four back in April with Jeffrey Wright. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and check it out. It's one of my favorites. But subscribe now if you haven't already and tell your friends to check out the hottest independent politics, news, and culture pod in America. You can go to angryamericans.us. You know the deal. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. But I want to thank you for all your support and helping us hit the charts and especially want to tell you to check the hashtag rudy butt Dial. if you're new here you will find out what i mean but we are not only surging on the charts in the u.s we are surging worldwide we hit number 99 in great britain we hit number 77 in japan number 52 in canada what's up canada number 35 in norway Number 26 in Slovenia. Number 19 in Hungary, where my grandmother comes from. My mother will be very happy to hear that. And number 10 in Romania. So big thanks to everybody in Romania for supporting Angry Americans. Angry Americans are worldwide, and there are plenty of angry Hungarians, angry Slovenians, angry Norwegians, and many others. But thank you to all of you who've supported this pod and keep making it happen. A couple other folks that made this episode happen, of course, my thanks to the great Charlotte Clymer. She is amazing and dynamic and powerful. Follow her on Twitter, look for her articles, watch her run for Senate. I will be tweeting clips of this episode and videos. You can also check out a video of the entire episode if you go to angryamericans.us with my thanks to Charlotte for her candor, for her leadership, and for her courage. My thanks to the whole Righteous Media team, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Badass Bill Schultz, Exceptional Eric Carlson. Thank you to all of you guys for making this episode happen. Of course, our thanks to Bravo Sierra. Father's Day was last week. Many of you checked out Bravo Sierra. If you haven't, check them out for July 4th, bravosierra.com. You get 15% off if you use the code ANGRY, but my big thanks to our friends at Bravo Sierra and also thanks to Uncle Nearest. If you heard that episode with Jeffrey Wright, you know the story of Uncle Nearest, but Uncle is a Supporter of this pod, and I want to thank them. Uh, they are premium whiskey inspired by the best whiskey maker the world never knew—the first known African American master distiller, Nathan Nearest Green. And the Uncle Nearest brand is wholly owned by Uncle Nearest Incorporated, an all-minority-led business. And they have some awesome premium age whiskey. They've got a blend of an 18 to 14 year old, an 11 year old single barrel, and a seven year old small batch. Uncle Nearest is distilled, aged, bottled, and hand-labeled in Tennessee. Check them out at UncleNearest.com, anywhere on social media, or tell your local liquor store that you want your Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest is available in all 50 states and 12 countries, and they have an awesome 270-acre distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee, dubbed by a member of the press as Malt Disney World. Gotta love it. And big shout-out to our friend Jeffrey Wright, who continues to do great work in Brooklyn and beyond. Thanks also to our Patreon members. You all have been awesome. Thank you to the vigilant, the very vigilant, the most vigilant. If you are not yet a member of our Patreon community, find us on Patreon. You can Google it. You can find Patreon. You can find the link on this description. But I've been sharing looks inside my garage. I've been sharing insights into who our guests are. I'm sharing other goodies. We're going to have videos. You'll get some Uncle Nearest. But check out our Patreon page. and. Join us for just five bucks a month. You can become a member of the Vigilant. You can join the Very Vigilant, or if you're feeling up to it, the Most Vigilant. You'll get exclusive access and you will help me keep this content coming and future projects. There are more on the way. Stay tuned, but we got some good stuff coming. And you keep the good stuff coming. So thank you to all our listeners every week. I want to thank a few angry Americans just for listening. And if you do, I will make you famous. I'll make you famous. You can call, email, tweet, and we will make you famous. Just do it.
9: Seriously, do it.
0: Do it. Do it. Like HeathGlow66, who left us a great review on Apple Podcasts. Welcome to you, and welcome to all the new listeners who came on board from the Ron Perlman episode. It is our highest ranked episode ever thousands of new people are now part of the angry americans community after ron joined us in the last episode thank you to all of you who came on board and especially to heathglow66 who said i just started listening today and i am hooked on your podcast i thought the length would be an issue but i am actually happy because you cover so much and i actually feel so much more informed about things now that i've listened you provide so much important content that we all need to hear thank you well thank you yeah it's not a short podcast but we pack a lot into the time and i hope that you enjoy it i appreciate you spending as much time as you do we try to make every minute worth it please continue to tell your friends big thanks to dayton thorpe dayton thorpe just a geek hashtag black lives matter hashtag punch nazis but said i love this episode preach black lives matter ron perlman is such a cool operator dayton you got that right ron perlman super cool operator stay tuned for more from ron follow him on twitter go back and check that episode out if you haven't heard it you are missing out it's also funny when i went back and listened to it i realized ron is funny as hell it was a fun conversation and it'll give you a lift and i think it'll leave you inspired big thanks to ak47 who is bne mariner on twitter who comes to us all the way from brisbane queensland australia who is into machinery safety, who loves cricket, is a metalhead, and tweeted, He has the four eyes and is battling the stupid virus head on. Respect permutations and Paul Rykoff. That's my Australian accent. But thanks to you, AK-47, for checking us out from Down Under. And big shout-out to my friend YGBSM in Highland Park, San Antonio. 21-year servant of the Commander-in-Chief who served under Reagan and Bush, IAVA member, uh, retired twice over, and said, Note to self, if you are trying to have a chill drive home in traffic, don't listen to Paul Rykoff's Angry American, rage-screaming at the windshield, white knuckles on the steering wheel, and going 100 miles an hour without even realizing it and also had a great thread about how iava impacted his life i'm glad to hear that man and ended it with so veterans vote vote for donald or vote for joe but please vote we fought for the right to vote and now is the time we express our civic duty I think that's exactly right, man. I hope that people will get out and vote. Register now if you haven't already. But my thanks to you, YGBSM, and everybody down in Texas. You guys always support us. And thanks to everybody again who checked out the Ron Perlman episode. And you can check all our previous episodes at AngryAmericans.us. And if you haven't seen the video of Perlman, you want to see what Ron Perlman's house looks like, don't you? Go to AngryAmericans.us and you can hear and see our conversation. You will like it, you will love it.
3: I'm,
0: more I'm grateful to all of you Thank you And as always Thank you to my family My wife And my two awesome boys I had a fantastic Father's Day It was chill We hung out And we went to a drive-in movie theater Where we saw Smokey and the Bandit I ate a steak They gave me a fishing pole, but most of all, I just got to hang out with my boys. It was a beautiful night. The stars are out. The fireflies are out. And my wife is amazing, as always. But it was an awesome Father's Day. I want to, again, wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, And big thanks to all the dads in my life who've been such an inspiration. Of course, my dad, but also my brother Mikey, Wiggy, Jace Wes so many others all of you guys Timmy Uncle Timmy all you guys in our life in my life have been inspiring dads and I'm learning from you every day thanks for your inspiration thank you for your example but most of all thanks to my family and you know one of the best memories I've ever had with my family is taking my boys to the pride parade last year we did it we took the baby we took Ryder and if you've never been to a pride parade pride parades are the most inspiring positive supportive welcoming activations i've ever been to and i've been to protests i've been to marches i've been to parades of all kind but nothing is like the pride parade and i know that it will evolve this year into a virtual parade but also understanding that the pride parade started as a march and it started as a march for equality. It started when it was led by fighters at Stonewall in New York after the Stonewall riots and it continues to evolve today, just like America. But big shout out to everybody who's leading the pride activations around the country and around the world. And if you've never been to a pride activation virtually check one out, you will be glad you did. Wherever you are, Stay frosty out there and continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave us a quick review. Subscribe now and Bill and I will have it hot and fresh waiting for you every Thursday evening or Thursday night. So pour yourself a drink after dinner you put the kids to bed or you shut off the news and enjoy a bit of Angry Americans. Or save it for your weekend, save it for your next week, save it for your drive. But I hope you will continue to support this podcast and tell your friends. We will continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome until then. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we'll keep this movement growing week by week by week. I'm it's okay to be angry, especially now. And know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. Happy Pride, everybody. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America, and stay frosty. Especially now, it's
7: getting hot. <laughs> Come on, y'all, dude Y'all are crazy, man